Hello and welcome to Saved by the 90s. My name's Adam Patterson. With me today, we have the always romantic Mr. Ken Bakley. Hey, Ken. Hello. Valentine's Day may be over, but we still have plenty of love to share this February with a special heart-shaped, double-sized episode lined up for you. So break out those assorted chocolates. This is Saved by the 90s. What makes a Dairy Queen frozen Valentine cake so special? Because it's made with a sweetheart of treats, delicious Dairy Queen chocolate and vanilla soft serve, and a big hug of chocolate fudge and chocolate crunch. But the icing on the cake is you can get it decorated our way or your way. The Dairy Queen Valentine cake, the most delicious way you can say, be my Valentine. We treat you right. Dairy Queen. Just, just the tonal dissonance between that commercial and everything we're about to talk about is staggering. I love it. I love it. Yeah. This month, we'll be focusing on the darker side of love, with stories of betrayal, obsession, and violence. So what better way to start things off than with possibly one of the most infamous erotic thrillers ever made? Directed by Paul Verhoeven, this is Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct is a smashing psychological shocker. You like playing games, don't you? It's nice. Not since Fatal Attraction has there been such an electrifying thriller. You're in over your head. Michael Douglas is terrific. But I'm really anyway. And Rolling Stone calls it one charged-up erotic thriller. Freeze! Basic Instinct, rated R. Released on March 20th, 1992, Basic Instinct stars Michael Douglas as a violent police detective who investigates a brutal murder in which a seductive novelist played by Sharon Stone could be involved. Now, I think it's interesting that we're starting this, this show off with Basic Instinct, because this is sort of, this is the big one, right? We're, we're starting off yeah. with the big one, and then all the others are sort of derived from Basic Instinct in a lot of ways, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, um, sort of, yeah. I think in terms of like the the 90s, boom of them i I guess you could say that they're basically all at least marketed as uh movies in relation to basic instinct somehow i think that some of the ones that we'll be talking about today are pretty blatant ripoffs of oh yeah basic instinct i think (laughs) yeah some of the beats are just uh, just like almost like (laughs) it's like it it almost it almost seems like they were saying, if you thought Basic Instinct was crazy, wait till you get a load of this. And they just try to one-up Basic Instinct. But Except Paul Verhoeven wasn't there, and so it didn't work. Yeah. Very, very true. So this is written by Joe Esterhouse, uh, a name that we will be coming back to. A name that we talked about before when we uh, talked about Showgirls. And a name that we'll be coming back to later in the show as well. Ken, what did you think of Basic Instinct? This is, um, I mean, I'm definitely part of that group of like Paul Verhoeven fans that think the great thing about a Paul Verhoeven movie is that in every scene, there's about 9 billion different things going on. And almost all of them are in some way working to deconstruct what you're otherwise seeing at face value on the screen. Uh, so yeah, just a great opportunity like this to just see him firing on all cylinders with this, of course, completely off the rails. Joe Esther screenplay is uh, it's, 
I don't like a lot of these, a lot of other movies like this. I don't know exactly how I feel about it all in the collective, but it's hard to not <laughs> almost just recognize instantly from just any single, like almost handful of frames of this movie exactly what's going on here uh, to the extent that you could figure it out. I've, I've always been a fan of basic instinct. I, I always recognized it for just how ludicrous the whole thing is, but I sort of like the, I sort of love the excess of this movie, just how over the top and overly sexualized everything is in this movie. And just, it's, it's just downright silly at times. And I think, I think that maybe uh, going back to when we reviewed Showgirls early on, I think some of uh, some of the reasons that you like Showgirls so much is why are the reasons that I like Basic Instinct. Every time I watch this movie, I fully embrace the the campiness of it, and mm-hmm. and just if I find it so enthralling. It is. It is. It is hard not to at least be. <laughs> fascinated just by the levels at which everything is operating here because maybe it's something that's more commonly attributed to showgirls because that's like the most distilled version of like the Verhoeven Esterhaus thing. But this is, I mean, obviously still an example of movie of a movie where everything is just going at way too high a level than it actually needs way, just a substantially higher level than it would ever need to be. Yeah. Completely agree. It's, uh, you know, you have Sharon Stone's character who sh- she's great. She is in s- has so much like understanding and so much control over this otherwise completely ludicrous character. This is an incredible performance. I'm not saying that ironically. She is so good in this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, I think this is, this is one of the roles that, that really kind of made her. I mean, she's, this is mm-hmm. the role, one of the roles that she, she's known for. You know, especially that that infamous interrogation scene that everybody mm-hmm. knows about. I mean, yeah. e- even if you never saw this movie, odds are you saw a clip of that. That mm-hmm. <laughs> really- well, just one of the, the trillion like references to it over the exactly ensuing twenty seven years. It's been yeah, it's been mocked and parodied to death. Which mm-hmm. you know. I still love that scene, not not for what she does, but I love uh, the the look on uh, Newman's face when he <laughs> when it happens. <laughs> I, I always forget about that. I think that it, it can't be underscored enough. The look on Wayne Knight's face because he's like, it cuts back to him, and he's like, he's normal one second. We cut away, mm-hmm. we cut back, and he's drenched in sweat. <laughs> I just think it's, it's such a great cut. I think it's so uh, funny. Yeah, I we will we, let us point out the this movie received two Oscar nominations, not quite enough, but two very deserved ones. For one of them was for editing, the other one was for uh Jerry Goldsmith's fantastic score for it. Just it just underscores well, pardon the pun, mm-hmm. everything so well and it just understands the tone of the movie on such a fundamental level really really incredible score and the uh, the editing wasn't uh that wasn't half bad either Mm -hmm. so so you have sharon stone as this she's an author she is maybe 
maybe she murdered uh, someone and you have Michael Douglas who is investigating the murder. He's a homicide detective and Michael Douglas's character is, you know, in, in the synopsis, it says he's a, he's a violent, he's a violent police detective. So we know early on that he was, uh, he was being investigated by internal affairs for killing two, two people who got in the line of fire when he was shooting at someone. So we know that he's a little unstable and I love a little unstable. <laughs> the, the violent outbursts, the, the crazy mood swings that he has in this movie. Like some of the, yeah. some of the things that he does and the decisions that he makes are so perplexing, just mm-hmm. random, I, random outbursts. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think watching this movie on just any critical level, you have to immediately come to the conclusion that for all of the bizarre things that Sharon Stone's character does, Michael Douglas's character is the most off the rails person in this movie. Absolutely. That's that's my take on this and I it's like I don't know how to read it any other way. I think that it should be noted like it just goes going back to the the infamous interrogation scene like that's not the only sort of provocative moment in this movie. This movie is absolutely filled with needlessly long graphic sex scenes and absolutely. there there are uh, several moments of violence in this too. I mean especially like the opening scene when the actual murder takes place very realistic and grisly looking mm-hmm. as well. Oh, and, yeah. and that those, those elements, you know, instantly made this a controversial film. Mm-hmm. I remember when they first released this on DVD, this was like early days of DVD. Uh, they released it in this clear blue case that looked like ice and the, yeah, I've heard about it that. actually came with an ice pick I think it was actually a pen, but it was made to look like an ice pick uh, in the in the DVD packaging. Yeah, I did not know that it was actually a pen, but that makes way more sense than just selling ice picks. I'm pretty sure it was a pen. I didn't own it, but yeah, it wasn't an actual ice pick. And I remember just sell ice picks. I remember the reason I didn't buy it, and I regret it now. But I remember the reason was that it didn't have any good bonus content on it and i was really bummed that it was lacking in bonus features isn't a pen that looks like an ice pick the only the the most substantial bonus product anyone yes. would ever need in hindsight yes i should have i should have bought it and i regret it now it's probably you can probably find it on ebay and it's probably really expensive <laughs> isn't the isn't just the ability to have a Paul Verhoeven movie and a packaging as excessive as the movie itself the only bonus feature you'd ever <laughs> yes, need? Yes, of course. Yeah, uh, of of course. Uh, yeah, I really love this movie. I think it's I think it's great. Uh, Jean Triplehorn mm-hmm. is in it. She plays Doctor Beth Garner, who mm-hmm. is um, Michael Douglas's character's like s- sort of girlfriend. On and off, I, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I don't like her character in this uh, very much. Of course, she turns out to be a suspect later on as they start to put it all together. It's one of those movies where it feels hard to talk about it because everything I try and think to say, I feel like somebody else has already said better. 
it's just kind of one of those movies that has been discussed to death almost like uh and even if it's not about the movie itself it's about a subject about like contemporary american film that somehow basic instinct has something to do with the evolution of or just verhoven at large like you said i think that it was the catalyst that started the whole erotic thriller boom of the 90s and we just don't you know, as I was watching these movies in preparation for the show, I was just thinking, we don't get movies like this anymore. Like, they just don't make movies like this anymore. You don't, you don't get the erotic thrillers. At least not mainstream ones. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that, that as many movies just sort of in the same mold as one movie are not being made in quite this way. And... The more we talk about these movies, some of them are really weird watching them in 2019. So I'm not too <laughs> torn up that we're not talking about a lot of them anymore. No, uh, to be clear. <laughs> because I think they can stay stay in the past. To, yes, to be clear, I'm not complaining that we don't have more erotic thrillers in our lives right now. <laughs> I'm just saying that the landscape, the, so yeah. the societal landscape has changed in such a way that these are... A, a very interesting relic from the not too distant past that I just don't think that we're going to get too much of anymore. It is instructive of a previous era uh, that we now realize was very problematic. <laughs> yeah. This, this movie's guilty of it too. I mean, uh, like some, some of the, All of these movies are yeah, guilty of some it. of the movies that we discuss are more pr problematic in their, uh, treatment of women and there's there's always a certain amount of objectification that's happening in these movies mm -hmm. but uh this is some some yeah, are more guilty thing, than others yeah i think the thing that helps basic instinct there is that verhoven as a filmmaker is aware of just how terrible these kinds of movies and plots tend to treat their female characters and so he just as he does he drives them to a point where there is nothing except how ridiculous all of these characters are drawn. Yeah. And, and the, I think that it also helps that Sharon Stone's character is, she's the uh -huh. one in power. She's the one mm -hmm. who is taking charge and running the show mm -hmm. essentially yeah. over these mm -hmm. stupid, stupid men who <laughs> let themselves so easily be manipulated by her in such a, a yeah. callous way she's i oh no we said it already but she is so good in this this is a tremendous performance yeah she's she's great in it uh it should should be mentioned that they did make a basic instinct too that came out in 2006 mm -hmm. i did watch it mm -hmm. i watched it today did you no mm -hmm. good it is no good mm -hmm. mm, no no the the only thing that's Maybe a saving grace is that Sharon Stone, she does play the exact same character. I mean, she just goes right back into that character and it doesn't, you know, a lot of times when you have sequels that come decades later that have a different writer and a different director and a largely a different cast, you end up making the the established characters that, that are coming over they feel different like they don't feel like the same character you know what i mean and fortunately 
in this case, her character of Catherine, it feels the same, but the movie itself is uh, tremendously terrible. Our next film stars a young Drew Barrymore as a precocious popular girl who perpetuates a passionate partnership with a rich classmate in order to penetrate the propriety of her parental units. This is Poison Ivy. Like most 15-year-olds, what Sylvie Cooper wanted more than anything else was a best friend. Everybody hates me. Oh, well, everybody hates me, too. Do you want to come over? Someone to talk to. Wow, this is great. Someone to understand her. Oh, Ivy, this is my mom, Georgie. Till death. Someone like Ivy. It's nice and cool in here. Um, I missed my ride. No. Dad, she's my best friend. But Ivy didn't just want a friend. Ivy wanted more. I hope that when I die, I'll have owned a sports car. I had a family. A home. And she'd do anything to get it. Hello, Mr. Cooper. Released on May 8th, 1992, Poison Ivy involves a mysterious teen who befriends an introverted high school student and schemes her way into the lives of her wealthy family. Opening scene goes to, they're like, all these kids are playing at this area that this is like swimming hole, like this local swimming hole. And we see Drew Barrymore and we see uh, Sarah Gilbert. And there's a dog that gets hit by a car, I guess. And in the like opening sequence, we see, Drew Barrymore's character killing this dog, ending this dog's life. So we know right off the bat, like they established the fact that she's, she's evil. Although I didn't feel like it was necessary at all to show that. And then you have uh, Sarah Gilbert narrating the movie throughout kind of chronicling her relationship with uh, Ivy, which isn't even her real name, right? She just calls her, Ivy, and we don't even know her real name. Like it, it's one of those characters that does not feel like a character. Yeah, it's just like an entity that floats above everything. Yeah, it's like what? Which I suppose is the point. It's like where where did she come from? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't Sarah Gilbert's character of Sylvie know who she is if they go to the same school? Like, shouldn't she know? Not necessarily. I mean, are, are they in the same? grade they seem to be like it seems like they're in the same grade i I don't know if this movie is best served by asking questions like that (laughs) and i don't even mean that as a detriment to the movie necessarily because there is something very interesting just about the entire style of the movie uh because there are very interesting individual components and elements and even just shots in it we, I feel it's worth mentioning this film is directed by uh, Kat Shea, and she went on to direct The Rage Carry 2, a movie I'm, oh, we will boy. discuss at some point oh, in the future. No. <laughs> and the reason I want to bring this up is because I actually think there's something very interesting that that like you can take from this, is that there's a lot of skill that she exhibits and a lot of author- like authorship that she exhibits in just putting these elements together to the point where you can definitely feel a very interesting filmmaker kind of like slow, uh, kind of like slowly like building up in her career up until this point as a filmmaker. The problem is she never gets enough opportunities to like, I mean, 
obviously I don't know everything or the proclivities of like the career or like what kinds of projects she was attached to that fell through, but it feels like if she were like just some male director, she would have directed like 75 movies by now. <laughs> and she would have had way more opportunities to actually put this together. Cause she started off doing stuff for Roger Corman. And then that kind of led to these other projects. And then the, Carrie two didn't make ver- uh, as much money as they wanted it to. And then they just dropped her off the face of the earth. Yeah. The, she was sort of relegated to doing some TV movies and stuff. And says here that she is directing the uh the the nancy drew movie coming out in a few weeks though yeah which is which is interesting i like it's good that she's like they're like giving her work but yeah i think this is like the prime example of like male filmmakers getting so many more chances to just make movies than female film directors with the exact same amount of like experience we look at male filmmakers and we look at the amount of chances they get the, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the multitude of opportunities they have to make bad movies and they just keep getting mm-hmm. chance after chance after chance. And, mm-hmm. you know, you look at it, Cache and, uh, you know, Poison Ivy is not, it's not a great movie, but it's not, it's not a bad movie. Yeah. It's not bad. It's quite clearly a, a competently directed movie with some very interesting, like individual choices that I think actually work. And yeah, it's, it's just a shame. And then you have... Yeah. Certain other male directors who can just, they seemingly just can make garbage yeah. over and over again and mm-hmm. just keep making garbage. It's, yeah, it is frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's definitely mm-hmm. frustrating. So this is, uh, as you mentioned, this was sort of Drew Barrymore coming coming into her like adulthood if i remember correctly there was a lot of like tabloid stuff about her uh, when she got older and this i think that this was coming out around that time when she was like known as she was she was sort of wild and this movie is sort of the thing that that broke her into uh roles that were more adult oriented roles. And I think she does a pretty good job in this as the sort of mm-hmm. psycho friend, best friend. It's a movie that I think can't quite surmount just the, just the ludicrously dysfunctional elements that its script is built from. I mean, it doesn't have to be make sense, but it's a script that doesn't either like, push itself together or doesn't just go completely off the rails. Uh, So I feel like everything from there is kind of stymied by the fact that there's this liminality to the, to the plot that doesn't quite serve it well. Yeah. Because a movie with such, with such sort of like bold individual character actions can't really have that holding it back. I mean, people are getting pushed off balconies while like wind machines gently blow the curtains. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, a, uh, there's a lot of mm-hmm. themes and and tr- sort of tropes that we have as a through line through a lot of these movies. You know, you have your overly abundant use of saxophone music and soft lighting and lots of dra- drapes and things that are flowing in the every, wind. Every movie from this era looks like a music video. Yeah. Lots of slow motion lovemaking scenes, but this this one is 
it's sort of interesting in that it's a it's a messy movie. It it starts off with the two of them meeting in detention, I believe, because Sarah Gilbert calls in a bomb threat to her dad's work, which <laughs> as one does, <laughs> which, you know, that's okay. And then you have Tom Skerritt as the very creepy dad. Very creepy in this movie. He was just a mm-hmm. total creeper throughout the whole whole yeah, movie. The character's terrifying. Again, you have this the Sarah Gilbert narration. And when she, so she sort of becomes friends with uh, Drew Barrymore's character of Ivy. And, and they have her doing this narration where she goes, I mean... I never knew anyone who looked that much like a slut. And here she is, my best friend. <laughs> and <laughs> many, uh, many gems are given in Sarah oh, yeah. Gilbert's narration in this movie. Like it's a, it's a, such a bizarre, so a narration, but I have to give her credit for really trying for like, really just delivering. Oh on yeah. It. She's, she's great. Like it's, like she's good and she's really is yeah. they so ivy tries to weasel her way into this family by becoming best friends with uh, sarah gilbert's character of uh sylvie and seducing tom scare tom scarrett like she was already living mm-hmm. there like my question is like why did she have to continue like, why did she have to go further when she was already living at the house? She was pretty much part of the family anyway. And then, like, she gets matching tattoos with Sylvie, which, by the way, they show that afterwards, they show her tattoo mm-hmm. afterwards, and it's, like, covered in blood. <laughs> and, like, that's not how that <laughs> works. That's not how tattoos work. If your tattoo is completely covered in blood after you get it done, there's a serious problem. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have the mother who has emphysema, although she doesn't really look like it. She, other than having to use an oxygen mask periodically, uh, there's there's really mm. no sign of her being sick at all. She seems, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely in the category of movies where they did not actually bother to figure out. Uh, what actually happens when a person is very ill like they made it because when when she first says like oh my mom's sick like i was under the impression that it was like a fake thing like her mom was an alcoholic or maybe she was had a an addiction problem some some other addiction problem like it was a, like it was a euphem it was like a euphemism or yeah like almost. like i thought she or maybe she was she suffers from some mental illness that made her like just stay in bed and that she didn't actually have emphysema, but like uh, like a visible physical condition, but apparently she does, but it just doesn't understand like what that looks like. It, it maybe it's another thing in the music video thing. It's a very it looks like the kind of treatment of a sick person you'd have right. in a music video where there's no dialogue, so it's just like individual like symbols like an oxygen tank. Yeah, and she's wearing like this like the silk nighty, and then. I could just imagine in the music mm-hmm. video where she's like laying in the bed and her hand is up at her forehead. And then you see like another like hand coming in with a wet washcloth and just slightly dabbing it on her forehead and everything. She's just in full makeup. And you have the breeze coming mm-hmm. in through the then, large windows. And then, and then when, uh, 
Drew Barrymore pu- uh, pushes her off the balcony. She starts flying through the city, and it turns into the "Bring Me to Life" video. <laughs> there you go. Because all all music videos eventually wrote back to that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, that, that, it's 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 2019, and there are, and it's the uh, and and as far as the memes are concerned, Thriller is not the fa- is that not the father of the modern music video. The "Bring Me to Life" video is. <laughs> uh the the other thing is there was a lot of darkness in this movie but there was constant rain happening it was just raining all throughout this movie which i thought was interesting because i think it takes place in la it rains in the bring me to life video too (laughs) i think it takes place in la and it's just constantly raining in this it didn't seem quite quite right and then no Another weird thing that I noticed about this movie is that they have, there's a lot of, you know, like, like many of these movies, there's a lot of really serious conversations, like lots of confrontations. And in this movie, they had a habit of talking about people as if they weren't in the room. Like, so like they they would say something directly about the mother when she's just standing right there with them <laughs> yeah, it it feels like a movie where they didn't hire a script supervisor sometimes if it, it, it was very odd like it happened at least three times that i can remember where they would be talking about like tom scarrett and he'd just be standing right there <laughs> it's like what what what's going maybe on maybe everyone's dead and they're all ghosts at different times Ooh, maybe that's a good theory i i didn't find the ending particularly satisfying either so you have uh, ivy who doesn't she kills the mom and then she gets killed yeah it's kind of a movie that just stops it yeah it just didn't really feel quite fleshed out enough it just didn't have a very satisfying conclusion not really i still found it to be fairly entertaining It, it 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 had all those tropes and did them to to full effect. I was just kind of loving this. I actually watched this on a plane, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it was it was fun to watch it on a plane. You watch this movie, and it's you can't really dismiss it outright because there are so many interesting individual components. Where I think that it goes back to what we were saying earlier. You'd watch it, and you'd think this is made by a filmmaker who was definitely honing her craft and has a very bright future. If you would just, if it would just give her movies and work yeah yep uh and but you know and uh, also apparently you only get that if you're a mediocre white guy yeah well the the other thing is this movie spawned three sequels so i mean it had to i mean uh, fascinating yeah, so according to imdb it it had a three million dollar budget and it only grossed 1.8 million in the u.s but I mean, it must have done well enough to get three sequels. I'm looking at that now. The the like the release pattern of these sequels is so odd. Yeah, ninety six is the first sequel. Ninety seven is the set second sequel, and the third sequel is two thousand and eight. Yep. <laughs> uh, I want to know the story there. So I watched Poison Ivy two. Um, I didn't have enough time to watch three or four, and honestly, I, I'm probably not probably not going to watch three or four. 
uh, Poison Ivy 2, which is the one that came out in 96, stars Alyssa Milano as uh, this, she's a young artist going to this art school and she finds Ivy's diary and she reads Ivy's diary and sort of uses that as a blueprint to become like more provocative in her sexuality and use her sexuality to get what she desires from men. It doesn't really follow the formula of the first one at all. Cause she's sort of the protagonist in, in that one. She's not, she's not evil. This is an entry. This is an entry in the great class of, uh, scripts that had absolutely nothing to do with the first movie, but they just slapped like the, 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 the title and the two onto it just to tie. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you could easily, you could easily see them, uh, just, just forcing the poison Ivy title in there. And I would be willing to bet that the other two are the same. Cause I mean, cause I she, just, she dies at the end. <laughs> like what's like, how, how, can, how can you have, there is not a sequel to that. <laughs> how can you, how can you continue it? The only, the only way to continue it is to have it be the same plot beats, right? Where you have uh, a seductress who's trying to weasel her way into a family. And it looks like the, mm-hmm. the third one has that, that same plot. Mm-hmm. I just think it's interesting that the second one isn't anything like that at all. Mm-hmm. Just the uh, just the complete. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine just how needlessly sure of yourself you have to be as like a studio executive to look at a script or even in some cases a finished movie and just take the standalone movie, take one look at it and say you're actually a sequel to another movie. <laughs> uh, I- I'm. I'm excited to see Poison Ivy for the Secret Society. I just have to know. Well, it's not a sequel; it's in a movie now. Yeah the 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 Poison Ivy sequels look pretty rough. And coincidentally, Shout Factory just released the Poison Ivy box set that contains all four movies. Brilliant. Yeah. So if you want to catch all four Poison Ivy movies, they are now on blu-ray in one four movie pack the only time you pay to catch poison ivy (laughs) there you go that should be their tagline yeah get a job at shout factory just for valentine's day we're arranging our famous hallmark crown chocolatier chocolates into a beautiful collection of heart-shaped packages like our tempting caramels and creams in a pink lemay heart or this delicious 12 ounce assortment in a stylish navy pinstripe heart and so many more, including a fresh little double heart for just two ninety nine. Call one eight hundred Hallmark for the store nearest you, and find whatever your heart desires this Valentine's Day at Hallmark. Hot off her role in A League of Their Own, Madonna stars in our next feature as a woman accused of murdering her lover by sexing him to death. Released on January fifteenth, nineteen ninety three, this is Body of Evidence. Sex is a game to it. The hottest erotic thriller is coming home. It's not a crime to be a beautiful woman. There's nothing wrong with admitting that you want me. She's a killer. Body of evidence. I'm hard to resist. In this erotic thriller, Madonna portrays a woman accused of killing a wealthy man through her sexual prowess. Mm. (laughs) So, 
why don't you start us off? I feel like I feel like the, your reaction there makes it feel seem like you have something to say. This this is the one that I was specifically thinking of when I mentioned the the basic instinct clone. Uh, mm-hmm. This feels so derivative of basic instinct, and they were just trying to top the the provocative nature of basic instinct by you know pulling in. Madonna, who in and of herself was a sex symbol at the time and making the scenes play out more graphically, maybe. Yeah, we'll say it. Yeah, more graphic. I think it was more graphic. And it's sort of the same movie, right? It's like Madonna plays this sort of cunning black widow of sorts. And the, the, the big difference is that this is essentially a courtroom drama. Most of it plays out in the courtroom with Willem Dafoe as her lawyer trying to defend her. And I just want to say that I love how every courtroom in the 90s in a 90s movie it looked like they were trying to imitate like Janusz Kaminski with the light just pouring through the windows. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, it's a great look. They got to make it more dramatic. They got to make it more dramatic and entertaining. I, I can't imagine that 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 I'm the first person knows. There has to be like a website or like a even just a tweet thread somewhere of just like Janusz Kaminski like court style like light pouring in through windows and courtrooms. And if there isn't, I will do it. Sounds like uh, a letterbox list. So you mm-hmm. need to, that's what you need to make right there. Mm-hmm. My my favorite letterbox list of all time is kind of like that. It's uh, just a list of all the movies that symbolize that a character has been injured uh, by putting like that high uh, that sort of high pitched like noise on the soundtrack. <laughs> it's a very long list. My the list that I want to make that I tweeted out about recently is the door switcheroo, where somebody goes to the door and then simultaneously there's someone else going to a door and you think that they're the same, but they're not the same (laughs) because that happens so much in TV and movies. And it's such a stupid trope. I guess it's for people that didn't know there's more than one door in the world at once. It's like, they're trying to trick us. It's like, it's like this false suspense. Uh, Anyway, we go to the movies to learn that there are two doors. (laughs) Uh, so what did you think of uh, a body of evidence? I I feel like most of what it's kind of hard to sort of look at this in an uh, in sort of an isol in, in isolation, because all I could think about was, you know, of course, this movie probably not undeservedly was not well received uh, because it doesn't really do anything that a movie like Basic Instinct does not do more knowingly. But I do want to say, for the record, even if this movie were great, that nobody would have admitted it because this was also around the time that like Madonna's like coffee table book, uh, the sex book came out, and people were just so willing to just rag on her for anything that even if this movie was great, nobody would have admitted it. So I feel like it wasn't going to it, it was the wind was against it no matter what. Yeah, there was there was uh, certainly a backlash against Madonna during this time. And yeah. I, I think uh, 
that this this movie definitely uh, fueled the those flames. I didn't think she was bad in it though. Like she was pretty good. Yeah, like she's not bad in it. Like people were like again she because people just saw her as this easy target that anytime that she was in a movie or doing something unconventional people were ready to just completely say that it was just her being provocative for uh, for the sake of provocation so that these things could combine that she could be someone she could be trying to branch out and do something different and also she's acting instead of doing music and people just went sort of like doubled down on it and this was also like after the negative publicity around her book so yeah people were just the knives were out i don't know it's like it's hard to look at this without the attached thing that ever since this movie's come out it's been had this specter over it that it's just this terrible act of hubris yeah now it may be that i'm not I saying mean, it's a good movie it, yeah the, the, yeah the thing is i was just gonna say that uh, the thing is it's not a very good movie but i think it's also interesting that so it takes place in oregon and i think portland actually and mm-hmm. one of the sort of plot points or, or not plot points but w- one of the things about this is that it's supposed to be this like super conservative uptight town so you have like these courtroom scenes where they were like, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this this is going to be a very graphic, explicit case. And the thing is, like, they were talking about handcuffs, and that's pretty much it. And it was like very, mm-hmm. it seemed very tame. But then, like, you would have this this like comment, like, did you use handcuffs with them? And then, you, like, the the crowd in the courtroom just erupts and they're like like a couple of times where the judge has to like eject the entire the entire gallery because they're just so scandalized by the entire thing it's it's almost as if it's a reflection of madonna's real life on mm-hmm. you know the how how uh the general public perceives her yeah. her art uh-huh. it, it's like that that's it's sort of an interesting uh reflection no, no, yeah. on that. it definitely feels like it definitely feels like a weird microcosm of that and per, uh, almost certainly not intentional but yeah i guess maybe it's so weird that this would be set in portland it is <laughs> because yeah that's not a reputation that portland had had for a very long time even by 1993 right that's what i was thinking like i always thought that portland was pretty progressive yeah yeah it my kind of feeling like just sort of the cursory reading like i've done about the history of portland is that it was kind of first known as a sort of like corrupt port town or dangerous place and then by the 60s it kind of had a counterculture scene and that's kind of been it's one of its defining notes ever since but it was sort of a hard transition there wasn't a lot of like space in between or maybe there was. Maybe this movie secretly set in 1965. Perhaps. And it's just, just in 1965 where videotapes exist. <laughs> yeah. Because that's like a big thing. It is. Yeah. It's it's like, that's another really scandalous thing that, that this was happening. And it, it, mm-hmm. it proves there's, there's uh, the videotapes come into play big time mm-hmm. later in the movie. 
So you have Willem Dafoe as essentially the Michael Douglas character in Basic Instinct, where he's trying to defend Madonna. He's he's trying to figure out if she actually did it, if she, if she actually had sex with her boyfriend to to the to kill him, which mm-hmm. the the whole plot in and of itself seems slightly ridiculous because it's like mm-hmm. they were they were together. He had a heart attack. That was his cause of death. He wasn't like gutted with a an ice pick yeah. or anything. It feels like um it feels like an entire movie written from like a weird misogynistic parlor joke. It, very odd. Like someone yeah, someone just took like a weird thing and just turned it into an entire movie. Of course, Willem Dafoe's character, Frank, falls for Madonna because she just for some reason just throws herself on him and what proceeds uh, are a series of very explicit sex scenes that get increasingly more ridiculous as the film goes on like the scene in the parking lot when she knocks out the lights and then stands on the car (laughs) it's like what is going on here and then there's like one scene where she's pouring champagne and wax all over him and then it seems like, like she, that scene goes on for like 25 it's minutes so long and it seems like she <laughs> pours wax on his crotch on his genital area and then proceeds to have sex with his waxy penis <laughs> and it's like <laughs> why are we seeing <laughs> why is this happening <laughs> and we do and i am i'm I'm 90%, I'm I'm 100% certain that it wasn't supposed to be in there, but you do get to see a shot of Willem Dafoe's waxy penis in in <laughs> in it cuz they're like supposed to be having sex, but you can just see it uh popping out. Will wonders never cease. <laughs> see it popping out the bottom <laughs> of the screen. Uh we're all here we're all here to see uh the 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 waxy genitals of our favorite stars. <laughs> It was so funny. And then there's this, there's like a a masturbation scene with Madonna when you have this like chanting that's occurring. This like, this like Gregorian chants that are playing as Madonna's. That's that's another early nineties thing. Gregorian chants everywhere. Yeah. That, I think that goes along with like the whole new age fad that was happening in the nineties, there was a lot of new age music. Enigma. Was, yeah. They, yeah. Enigma. Uh, the, the amount of soft lighting in this movie was mm-hmm. utterly ridiculous too. like <laughs> scenes that required no soft lighting. Like I remember there was like one scene where she's just in an elevator. It was like coming out of the courtroom or something. And she goes into an elevator. I think it was the scene when she starts like <laughs> pleasuring him in the elevator <laughs> with all the other people. Like, but before that happens, there's this like ridiculous soft lighting in the elevator. And it just looked, it looked like they just put a big glob of Vaseline over the lens. It just looks so bad. Like, like I mean, you kind of get the thing. If you don't remember particular areas, if you weren't alive for particular past eras, then you just kind of assume they look like whatever the, whatever the, the cinematography of the movies of that time were. So it stands to reason uh, of course, that um, uh, no one will ever believe that uh, 
full functioning light bulbs existed before 1996 or thereabout. <laughs> because all the lighting before then in the movies in the 90s is very soft. <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Ever- the world was still primarily lit by candles until uh, <laughs> 1996 or so. Yeah, they always use like those frosted, like frosted lights. Mm-hmm. You can't. Oh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but they had to go to real light bulbs because Madonna took all the candles in the world and dumped the wax onto Willem Dafoe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, and the funny thing is, like, she she dumped the wax on him, and then she starts licking his chest. And I'm like, is it champagne, or is she just is she licking the wax? Is she eating the it wax? Was like a different part of his chest, almost. <laughs> she, like she just did that, and she thought, well, that was interesting. <laughs> I'm just gonna eat the wax off your chest. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my god, this movie—it's pretty ridiculous. It, I, I, I had fun with it. I really did. I thought it was a good time, but not necessarily a good movie. No, not at all. None of it. None of it felt even remotely within the realm of realism. Like it just—it felt so. Uh, <laughs> cartoonish the treatment of her by everyone on the prosecution side she's like this monster she's just this like sex monster who's trying to kill everyone and take all the money and it none of it none of it just going back to like the idea that how is this even like a a criminal case like it just seems so strange and it's not like it's the case of like the prosecution hating her, but the movie doesn't. The movie kind of really hates her too. It does. Yeah, the movie. The movie absolutely yeah. hates her. Willem Dafoe hates her. Yeah. He he hates. Yeah. He hates her, and then like, but but he'll still have sex with her. Like he hates her, but he'll yeah. he'll still lay with her. You know. <laughs> yeah. This truly is like the 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 like basic instinct from a from a from a maliciously evil universe yes there's also uh like in basic instinct there's the a scene that sort of borders on sexual assault that sort of borders on well yeah it, it is uh that sort of it starts out as a sexual assault and then turns into like a consensual thing which i think yeah no i i think in both movies those scenes were harmful like they those those shouldn't have yeah. existed at it's all bad. and they instantly it's, any there's no excuse for any kind of credibility those characters had be it willem dafoe's character or michael douglas just goes right out the window at that point Absolutely. and any anytime in both movies after that those scenes occurred i'm just like screw those guys yeah it like i guess what it comes down to is this is the kind of movie you would have uh, if anyone other than Paul Verhoeven had directed Basic Instinct. Yeah. Or Paul Verhoeven is a director who understands what's happening and knows how to read it at a broader level that actually has something interesting to say on a philosophical level, where this movie is just gives into all of its worst impulses. It truly despises Madonna's character for just just as a matter of principle. And it's like, yeah, it's a mess. Like the, the just the like Madonna, good in this. She's trying. She really is. But the movie just hates her character so much. Still pretty fun to watch. Aside from you know those few moments that we mentioned. 
Julianne Moore's in this too a little bit. Yeah, so she plays essentially the Gene Triplehorn character, the <laughs> the significant other of Willem Dafoe in this movie. She doesn't have much to work with in this, though. Certainly not as much as Gene Triplehorn's character in Basic Instinct. Yeah. If there has to be one other person to like balance out the Meryl Streep level of like ubiquitous Oscar nominations, if one other person has to join that level, Julianne Moore should. <laughs> I feel like I would just feel better if we had to add one other person to that. If better, if like every year when I watched the Oscars, I knew either Meryl Streep or Julianne Moore would be there. <laughs> yeah, she's she's I great. I just would like knowing that. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, she's she's even great in this. This is. An, yeah, er, an early role for her. She doesn't even get to do anything in it. This, uh, no, it's not her first movie, but it's one of her first or third feature from the looks of it. Uh, yeah, like this was like, I guess, right before she really, uh, her career started taking off. We didn't mention the director, uh, Uli Adele. He made a few other movies. Looks like he did a bunch of TV stuff. Uh, did some mm-hmm. German movies and stuff like that. Uh, body of work. He did the little vampire in 2000. He did uh, the Bader Meinhof complex that got like a, yeah, that got like a Oscar nomination that year didn't, I think it, uh, yes, it did get nominated for foreign language. All right. That is body of evidence. Our next feature explores what happens when a young woman's innocent crush turns into a dangerous obsession. Starring Alicia Silverstone in her film debut and released on April 2nd, 1993, this is The Crush. From the moment she met him, she was crazy about him. I love you, Nick, and you love me! Now look, you're too young for me. There's nothing between us. But if she can't have him, no one can. The Crush, rated R. A precocious and obsessive teenager develops a crush on a naive writer with harrowing consequences. Ken, what did you think of The Crush? First thing is I want to formally express my disapproval of the very first, one of the very first choices that the writer-director of this film, uh, uh, Mr. Alan Shapiro, makes, is that the in the film, originally, Alicia Silverstone's character is named Darian Forrester. Now, for the DVD release, it had to be changed to Adrian Forrester. And the reason why is that Alan Shapiro claims that this film was based on uh, something that actually happened to a neighbor of his. And he went so far as to literally name (laughs) the character exactly first and last name after the person <laughs> that it was ostensibly based on, which is such a terrible thing to do. Just doxing someone to make your m- mediocre movie. Oh my. Wow. I didn't know so, that. Yeah. Yeah. I immediately read that. I was like, and nobody told you not to do that before the movie came out. That's crazy. And, Cause in the IMDB credits, it still says Darian Forrester. Like, yeah, I'm guessing that that's what like the, it was registered as, uh, but yeah, the film is, it's now it's Adrian and all subsequent releases. Did they, did they dub it? Did they like re, did they redub I, I guess. it? Cause I, I didn't, I, I, that's, I assume. cause I didn't pick up on I that. Guess, Usually I do. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's just similar enough. They just, I mean, they just switched two letters around. 
Very interesting, because I totally didn't pick up on that. Yes, I discovered that later, and I was entirely flabbergasted that a great idea we had was just to dock some random person, basically. Wow. So Alicia Silverstone plays a 14-year-old girl in this, and she becomes madly obsessed with uh, Carrie Elways, who plays a writer, journalist, moves into her she's she's a comes from a very wealthy family and they have a a guest house and he moves into the guest house and she becomes obsessed with him and starts uh sabotaging his life after he rejects her i remember seeing this movie as a kid and kind of liking it uh being into it Rewatching it now as an adult i'm just like mm, it's not great <laughs> it's it's no it's it's not it's not great uh, there's so many weird choices here, just like strange choices. Like one of them, and I'll, maybe the laziest choice from just a writing perspective, is that the Adrian Fars, like Alicia Silverstone's character, is maybe one of the most outwardly powerful characters in terms of this latitude of things she can do. One of the most powerful characters in a movie that is not explicitly said to be a supernatural entity. Yeah. I mean, she just like, she just turns superhuman after a while. Yeah. She can just, she has this ability of just showing up. She just like, Mm -hmm. he, they make a point to showing him like paying extra money to get this like super kryptonite lock put on the door. Mm -hmm. And she still just either he's an idiot and doesn't leave the door locked. Or, I mean, or what? His, but she, the she, Carrie, his the Nick Nick is not a very bright person. No, absolutely. So not. I wouldn't put it past him. He's, to leave the door unlocked. He's a journalist. He should be. He should know that he should be like documenting everything, you know, re- mm-hmm. recording things, making sure that he has notes on all of this stuff. As soon as the red flags went up which go up very early very early on there's there's red flags but he everywhere he ignores yeah and he, uh, yeah i guess he pays this extra money for this lock and he doesn't bother locking it so she just shows up goes into his apartment whenever she wants just pops in and like how did he not think that she wasn't going to mess with him when like he leaves, like there's this one scene where he has this big interview. He writes this big article and she deletes it. And it's like, of course, of course she's going to do that. You just leave your computer open and your door unlocked. Of course, she's going to go in and mess with your stuff. You know, she's, you know, that she stole the photo of you and your grandfather. Of course, she's going to do that. Although I do want to say this is a movie uh, very good at realizing uh, one of the very early movies to realize that perhaps the scariest thing that could ever happen is to just go on your computer and find that a file's just gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, and it, That's the most realistic thing that happens in this movie. I mean, at least he makes backups. Of course, she, she deletes those too, yeah. but at least he did it. Mm-hmm. Most people don't <laughs> do that. That's the that's that's the only rationally human thing he does in this movie. When they introduce Nick, he is going into it's when he first moves into the guest house and he shows up and they're showing him the guest house and stuff. And it's when he first meets Adrian or Darian or whatever. 
and his he's like covered in dirt from head to toe. I don't know if you noticed that, but <laughs> it's like, why is this man so dirty? He's a journalist. He's just moving into this wealthy home. Why is he covered in dirt? It doesn't make it any sense whatsoever. Yeah, he's like covered in uh, he does not, but he is a journalist working at what I guess is implied to be uh, a relatively well-known magazine, ex- except not having the critical thinking skills to make me believe he would even know how to string a sentence together in the first place. Oh, while I'm on that subject, the great thing in movies, especially movies that don't think about this kind of thing, is when they say that the character is a writer and then they accidentally give you an opportunity to do to pause and look at like a shot of what they're writing oh yeah because it's just all like fluff that's just pasted in but yeah this truly has like a great example of that yeah so he gets this job at this prestigious magazine or whatever and his first article that he submits adrian intercepts it somehow and writes her own and submits hers as his and they love it Mm. and that gets him like all these bonus points at his job and, and all of this stuff. And also I just want to mention the boss at this, this magazine mm-hmm. is he is a, a cartoonish tyrant. This guy, he's so mm-hmm. evil. And I love the scene. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is the, the cookout scene when Nick's having a cookout for his work friends and th- the boss shows up with, this bottle of wine and he's like carry on or something like that when he leaves. And it's like, dude, you're, we're out of work. You can't be bossing us around at our own (laughs) cookout. And then Nick proceeds to tell his, this, so he ends up dating this photographer at his work. And during that cookout, he demands that she go get sticks for the marshmallows and in like this like like almost violent manner he's like go find sticks and it's like excuse me like this is like this is your party tell me to go find sticks you want me to go out into the woods and find sticks for you no no and of course they have to do that so that they introduce, you know, the first big conflict between Adrian and the girlfriend. And when she shows her the, the wasps nest, which will uh, are obviously foreshadowing what happens later in which she takes the wasps nest and shoves it into the fan of her dark room. She has this like little shed that she uses as a dark room and, Mm-hmm. Just shove those wasps in there and get her, sting her up. Another example of how this character is written so unrealistically powerfully. She just like t- picks up wasps' nests and just shoves them in fans. <laughs> yeah. I also thought that there's, there's another scene that happens before that when the friend of Adrian approaches Nick and says like we need to talk. I don't I don't think that she even approached him in person. I think she might have called him or something and said we need to talk mm-hmm. uh you know meet me here. And somehow Adrian picked up on this 
and I guess saw it as a, as a threat. So she made her fall off her horse at riding practice and it caused her to break her arm. Yeah. There's so many individual components of that where you, it's just things that just happen. <laughs> like just things that you just assume the movie just assumes that she just somehow figures out how to do, uh, just picks up on the information and then just makes her fall off a horse. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's very strange. And then you have her accosting him at like, so she has this, this like riding competition and she gets pissed when he doesn't show up uh, because he's at a work event. So she leaves the competition, goes to the work event and like accosts him during this work event and then beats herself up in order to get him arrested for child abuse. And of course that leads to the the climax of the film when the, oh please can we talk about this this is when it like fully goes off the rails when she ends up kidnapping her friend and tying her up to the the uh carousel that her dad yeah. built in their attic for some reason so the dad's played by that, kurtwood I, smith i remember like Kurtwood Smith takes Carrie Elwes up to the attic and like th- like the first act of this movie and is like, I'm building a carousel up in the attic. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I just uh, look one look at that and I thought, this carousel might be the biggest Chekhov's gun in the history of just oh, like yeah. fiction of any kind. Oh, big time. <laughs> Where it's like, there's so many questions. One, why? Yeah. Two, how? <laughs> Three, when? <laughs> Just all of them. Who, what, when, where, why, how. <laughs> and it's like a full-size carousel in their attic. And, he, and my favorite part of that, when he first took him up there, he goes, do you want me to turn it on? And I'm just like, yes. You want me to turn it on? One, how, how big is this house? And two, if that's not the relevant question, how big does this movie think a carousel is? Yeah. and Because it's not like a little one. It's like a giant carousel. Yeah. And, and he's like, oh, it was supposed to be for Adrian. This was going to be like her playroom up here. And I was going to restore this carousel and give it to her. But she wasn't interested. And I'm like, what playroom is just a carousel? You're going up to this creepy <laughs> attic. sized merry-go-round. I mean, don't you think that you're, you would want to find out if your kid's into carousels before you build a full-size carousel up, upstairs? <laughs> Uh, Frankly, the story about why Kurtwood Smith built a giant carousel in his attic is far more interesting than anything that happens in this movie. That should have been this movie. I just want to see an entire movie of Kurtwood Smith facilitating the the movement of the parts, putting it together, and and trying to restore this carousel. I just want Kurt, Kurtwood Smith's carousel restoration. I want that to be a movie. Because... <laughs> I also want to point out, you don't actually have to change that much in the climax of the film for the carousel not to be necessary at all. No, it's like they knew, like they wanted a carousel to be in it. Like they wanted that scene where the girl is tied up on the carousel and Carrie always has to go save her. They wanted that scene. Mm -hmm. So they were like, how are we going to do this? Well, let's just put a carousel in the attic. Sounds good. Like, 
because it was it was it was completely unnecessary. It added nothing. It added nothing to the story other than there's no reason the carousel needs to be in the attic. Yeah. It could have just been like you could have just like gone like maybe it almost would have made more sense and it would have been atmospheric, just like an abandoned fairground. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it, it would have been just as ridiculous, but mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more <laughs> grounded. To have them, mm-hmm. t- to have her kidnap her friend and take her to an ab- abandoned, abandoned uh, ground where one thing works and it's the carousel. Yep. And you always, you turn it on and it slowly builds up and the music starts playing and the lights. Yeah, definitely. I also want to talk about the part where uh, Nick finally, like at the, the end of the climax when <laughs> Nick punches her in the face and she goes flying off the oh, carousel my God. like that's how like that's how he finally rids herself of her because she's like attacking him and then he turns around punches her in in the face like and then she just like blows back like she was just hit by a <laughs> yeah. truck or something he, it's th- that scene is probably my favorite moment in the whole movie when he just looks and you know it's lots of lots of action lots of in- intensity you know there's lots of wrestling around because Kurt Kurtwood Smith gets involved and then he gets knocked out like she she knocks out her own dad by beating him in the she she beats him in the back with the the pole that pulls the attic stairs down and one blow to the back just lays him out completely he is unconscious she doesn't bash him in the head. She hits him in the back, and that's apparently it. it's a hereditary thing where no one in that family can sustain uh, any uh, any like physical discomfort at all without just completely losing consciousness. <laughs> you get hit in the back, I am out. <laughs> Don't hit me in the back because I will pass out immediately. <laughs> but anyway, so you, you then you know the two of them are wrestling around, and then they very meticulously frame this shot of him just punching her as hard as he can right in the face. And she flies like it's and like when, when it happens, like all of the, like the swelling music and everything, it just dies. So you just, it just stops. so you just see the impact of her flying across the room into like a pile of blankets. It's, it's so incredible. I think we can agree that she is the only interesting character in this entire movie. So she at least deserved a more interesting defeat than just flying off a carousel. Yeah, I was like, yeah, she, they, they should have uh, done like a, a hand that rocks the cradle or a, or a body of evidence conclusion yeah. with her or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She should have been like riddled with bullets or fallen off of, Lots of uh, a lot of these erotic thrillers involve people falling off of out of balconies and things because they can show them like falling in slow motion. Yeah. Adds to the drama. So we then have the the twist at the end or, or I don't know if it's even a twist. It's just a little stinger at the end where she's now in an institution and uh, Nick is a- acquitted of the-, the charges after they realize that that the girl is actually crazy, and uh, the- she seems to be doing better. But guess what? She's got a crush on her doctor, and she has 
a photo of him and his wife. I would, I would gladly watch a weekly television show of this character just going all around the world and destroying everybody's lives just one at a time. <laughs> Every week she just does this again, <laughs> except she's successful. Uh, <laughs> because apparently her power knows no limits. No. She she is so she's would, omnipotent. So I would watch her do this every week. I, I thought I thought it was a good role for Alicia Silverstone. I mean, it was a, a pretty good debut for her. You know, this is this is pre Clueless. She she did a, uh, she did a pretty good job actually. Her her character mm-hmm. did have some complexities. Uh, the the movie itself didn't have much yeah, to say. No complexity. In the movie. <laughs> they're they're like. Uh, every other character in the movie is basically a not, basically has no personality at all. And she, if anything, has too much going on. Like this character, like I said, is just too powerful to be a human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I just want to see, cause you know, we don't get to see a lot of the stuff that she does. We see the, the aftermath, like when she, when she, uh, scraped his, his car up, uh, and, and deleting the files and stealing the photo. I, I want to see more of her doing these things and like mm-hmm. finding the time to do these things. I mean, she, she's very brilliant. She's, she's a brilliant little psychopath in this. Yes. Because once again, this character is 14 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, she has the wherewithal, the resources, the time, the incredible, but and the incredible, just like plotting ability to do all of these things. So, this movie is not in the business of answering questions, so you can't even use this comparison. But if it would be a case of for everyone, everyone like plot thread, this movie ties up. It just raises like eleven more questions. The time thing is something that I pondered while watching this, like we see her rollerblading. So we know she's an avid rollerblader. We see her doing the horse stuff. She has school. And they said at one point they skipped her ahead two grades in school. So she's probably being challenged at school. I would, I would imagine being two grades ahead. And it's like, where, where does she have the time to spend focusing on dismantling this, this guy's life? Because honestly, like, so she'd be 14, so she'd be like a junior in high school. She, like, like the upper classes of high school, like the last couple of years of high school are truly like just all of high school is kind of exhausting because they have to keep you there for a certain amount of time. So it's mostly just draining busy work. Uh, right. So I don't know. So she has to go in do eight like six hours of draining busy work uh and then have all this time to like plot how to methodically tear this grown adult <laughs> apart i want her to write a book i want her about time management yeah it's it's pretty incredible i want adrian forrester's guide to productivity and also it should be noted she's done this before so we we learn yes. we learn later on that this mm-hmm. isn't the first crush that she's had with, with a an older guy, mm-hmm. and she killed him. <laughs> like that takes more planning. Oh, oh, and she also somehow convinces when he, when he decides that he's going to move 
out and move into another place, she somehow convinces his new landlord that he's a drug dealer. (laughs) (laughs) She does so much. Yeah. She, she really, she, she thinks she has it all planned out. It's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the degree to which the movie just completely demonizes the idea of, a, of just like this teenage girl, this child, basically, uh, this, this movie is essentially so just casually misogynistic. It just goes all the way around, loops all the way back, and actually turns out to be about an astonishing human being. Yeah. Uh, I, I think going back to the photographer character and just how... <laughs> she's so mistreated throughout this movie. She's she's just uh she's, she's just an object in this movie. She she has like no mm-hmm. discernible personality really. I don't know if I would consider this I mean I, I, I picked it because I thought of it as an erotic thriller, but I, I don't know if it's uh necessarily conventional erotic thriller. There's there's a lot of the same elements in this, but it's not quite as uh, explicit as a lot of other erotic thrillers, thankfully, because she is yeah, she's yeah. fourteen I, I years don't, old. I don't want it to yeah. be. <laughs> so it's it's a little bit uh, less erotic than than us. It's like a it's 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 like uh, a very disturb disturbing very disturbingly implied like weird version of fatal attraction where it's about a child <laughs> yeah and, and it should be noted that he does kiss her in it like he yeah he full-on makes out with that her one, at, the, at the towards the beginning once, once again another circumstance where like the ostensible male protagonist is absolutely not a sympathetic individual at all no that coupled with the fact that he's an idiot i mean that that's sort of the through yeah. the the thing that we've learned so far in these movies is that men have no self-control whatsoever and Mm -hmm. uh, women are evil and they will, they will ruin you. That's, that's what we've learned. Like all, yeah. Like all beliefs that are used to excuse, uh, to like come up with excuses when men do terrible things to women. Right. It's, it's never the, the man's fault. It's, it's the, the woman. It's because, yeah. Yeah. I I don't really mourn the fact that movies like these are not getting made anymore. <laughs> if that's one of the if that's one of the few signs that we actually can make progress as a society is not getting movies like these made as a start. I mean, I think it would be interesting for someone to come back to this genre and sort of make a new one but like deconstruct the the tropes and sort of reclaim it. Like sort of like uh, mm-hmm. what Revenge did last year with like the rape revenge mm-hmm. subgenre. I think it would be cool to see uh, a capable director taking this and sort of twisting it. Get that <laughs> There you go. All right. <laughs> What says love more than literally ripping out someone's heart? I don't know, but if you're looking for some extra time for love in Mortal Kombat 2 for Super Nintendo, then listen up, because this month's Cheater's Corner is for you. To get extra time for fatalities, press up, up, left, up, 
down plus select at the character select screen. You will now have 15 seconds to do fatalities instead of five. Now, get out there and show some love to those opponents. The second Joe Esterhaz scripted film we'll be discussing this month takes place in a high-tech apartment building in which all of the tenants' dirty laundry is being captured on cameras. Released on May 21st, 1993, this is Sliver. They're in our homes, our hallways, our elevators. Welcome to 113. You like it here. But now they're in the most frightening place of all, our fantasies. You watch these people? Somebody's watching you like you watched that? What do you mean you saw us? We'll know every movie makes. It's like playing God. It's better. Sharon Stone, William Baldwin, Tom Berenger. Sliver, rated R. Starts Friday, May 21st at theaters everywhere. Directed by Philip Nice, Sliver star Sharon Stone is a woman who moves into an exclusive New York City apartment building, which she soon discovers houses tenants with all manner of shocking secrets. Now, Ken, I don't know about you, but Mm -hmm. I had a blast with Sliver. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. Oh, yes. Uh, Of course, as it should be, it's written by Joe Esterhaus, but I think watching any variety of Joe Esterhaus movie not directed by Paul Verhoeven really reveals just how well uh, Esterhaus's insanity and Verhoeven's brand of insanity go together, Mm -hmm. because when you try and put another director on it, it's all at face value, and it feels weird. Yeah, I think that I think the thing about Esther House is that he he's so out of touch. Like he writes about things that it seems like he thinks he knows about, but he mm-hmm. but he has no idea. So all of his movies seem so farcical. Like they're just so mm-hmm. silly. They end up being we were ridiculous. We will get to that when we talk about Jake. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I liked about or one of the one of the reasons that Sliver really spoke to me was I have a thing for movies that take place in opulent high rises. I always mm-hmm. I always like that as a setting from oh, it's for a great movies. Setting. And the the beginning of this movie and, and actually throughout the movie, it had a strong giallo vibe to me, uh, especially the mm-hmm. the opening sequence where you have the uh on the faceless murderer with the black gloves and it just had a very strong giallo uh homage to it almost yeah i can see that and i I guess you could say the same thing about a lot of these movies um Mm -hmm. some of the other ones that we're going to be getting to later also have a bit of a giallo vibe to them too and i absolutely love uh, giallo films i'm like borderline obsessed with giallo movies so these these are always a blast to revisit but you have the opening sequence as i mentioned a murder occurs but you have those those luscious flowing curtains those drapes that are just flapping in the wind like uh, so many other movies that we already talked about this episode <laughs> and then 
surprise, surprise, a woman gets pushed from a building and falls to her death. Yet another trope that we've talked about, which I didn't even, I didn't really, before doing this episode, I didn't really think of that as a trope in these erotic thrillers, but I'm seeing a pattern emerging here. Yeah, there's a lot of patterns. And after a while, they led me to the conclusion that these are just all very loose variants on the exact same script. I don't mean the same story. I think the same script. (laughs) There was one script somebody wrote, and they just kind of changed it a little bit every time. That that very well could be. So yeah, it's it's like it was like a game of telephone where the first person would change it a little and then the script would go to the next movie and they would change a little more and then the next movie and it would change a little bit more. But it was all starting at the same source. And, it, and it's so funny because you have a lot of the same writers involved, same directors, same actors. It's just it, it's really eerie how a lot of these movies just end up being the exact same. As Yeah, as someone who has a very good penchant both in movies and in real life of seeing someone that I know I've seen somewhere before and then tearing myself apart, trying to figure out what their name is. These movies were like torture to me because they all had the exact same cast. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. So Sharon Stone stars in this one as Carly. She's a, an editor and she moves into this, this luxury high rise and she just got out of a seven year relationship she was married she's feeling a little insecure she's feeling a little heavily guarded she doesn't really want a relationship but she meets william baldwin who is a tenant who you later find out is actually the owner of the building but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves and tom berenger who was a writer oh william baldwin by the way plays uh he he makes computer video games according to according <laughs> to him quote i design computer video games which um i mean maybe to him it kind of is <laughs> i design computer video games that was my one of my favorite lines there's a lot of really great uh-huh. a lot of really great lines in of course in it's, this yes movie. it's also an incredible series of words so you have this love triangle forming And we later find out that, actually pretty early on, we find out that the whole place, this whole uh, building is, has cameras everywhere. Just cameras, wall-to-wall cameras. How these people don't see all these cameras, I have no idea. Like, I'm pretty sure I would see cameras. If there were, like, multiple cameras in my apartment, I think I would see them. Like, just, just through cleaning just i would find them i don't i don't understand that well (laughs) you see (laughs) he designs computer video games so that explains everything apparently and this this security camera system is like the most sophisticated cameras i mean we we see early on like one of the first nights is this very sexy scene with sharon stone in the bathtub and somehow these security cameras can perform close-up handheld shots. How, how these cameras can do that, I have no idea. But it's th- they're pretty incredible. It's it's really amazing what these cameras. He do. did. He paid six million dollars for the setup in Osaka. So 
We know they're pretty good. That does not seem expensive enough for what the, all of these cameras do and where they are all positioned all over the building. I mean, it's like they're on drones That or would something. cover three floors. It's pretty incredible. One of the first nights, she comes home from work, and there's a giant, very expensive-looking telescope in her apartment. And somehow this doesn't concern her at all. She just looks at it and smiles. She, she finds it charming that someone broke into her apartment and put in this giant telescope, which, a, again, be, don't understand that at all. Be, just be very suspicious of anyone anywhere who has a telescope and lives in like a densely populated environment. Well, the, the funny thing about that is she has a cocktail party later and invites people from the building and they're chit-chatting up and i can't remember which character said it but one of the characters goes everybody has a telescope and i'm like what everybody they do everybody has a telescope and then later on we see that her uh the the person that's across the building or across the street in the next building they have a telescope and they're looking at her and i'm thinking Maybe everybody does have a telescope in New York, and somehow I'm just missing out on this. Yeah, you need you need to get on, in on that telescope action. I need to get a very expensive gold, old-timey-looking telescope. That is a great use of what I presume would be an obscene amount of and money. And I can point it out my, out my window. Now, my window overlooks uh, nothing. It's just another part of the building so i won't be able to see much but i'll have it mm-hmm. and that's yes that's the point that's what counts uh-huh if if you don't have it then then are you really a person <laughs> I, I guess i guess not so it's like the telescopes are one of the uh core resources of the human existence because who doesn't want to have a hard time trying to see something you couldn't see anyway <laughs> right <laughs> I, I loved that scene when they at the cocktail party when they're watching the people have sex across the way and it's like they're mm. right across the street you, and and they're in the apartment that's like adjacent or p- parallel to you so you'd be able to see him anyway like you don't need the telescope let's be real mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah uh but 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 it's not about needing the telescope, Adam. It's about having the telescope. It's about what the telescope symbolizes. I understand. The real telescope were the friends we made along the way. I get it. I really loved the the building itself. Uh, again, I just have a soft spot for these sort of ri- ridiculous, like elaborate high rise buildings in, in movies. And, uh, it turns out that this building in particular it is only three blocks away from where I live. So mm-hmm. today I was like, I gotta go check this building out. So I went and there, sure enough, there it was the sliver building mm-hmm. in all its glory. Uh, there, uh, if you're yeah. curious, if you want to move into the sliver building, there are two units and who wouldn't, there are two units for sale. Uh, these are condos, by the way. They're not rental properties. They're condos. And 
There's a one bedroom that's available. It's 2.5 million. And there's a three bedroom available and it's 4.5 million. So, and, and, and what percentage of this is the cost for the telescope? I'm not sure. Is that, I don't know if it, that's baked in or if the telescope is an additional fee. The, like the, like the quality of the building is complete garbage. You're paying for the telescope. I, of course. Yeah. You're, you're paying for the telescope and the advanced security system that will be spying on you 24 seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember, Yeah. Today you, you went by the building, you took a picture and you sent it to me and you had like five exclamation marks and you just said sliver building. <laughs> and it's one of the greatest messages <laughs> I've received in a very long time, just because I, I felt in that moment that we were connected to uh, an important cinematic landmark. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the sliver building. I mean, I, I went out today. I wasn't going to go out today. I was going to clean up around the, the apartment, do some stuff. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to see the sliver building. So I went, I went out for the sole purpose of seeing the sliver building. And I was not disappointed. That was the front the, side there. You can, if I walked around the block, I probably could have seen the, the backside, which shows off those balconies. So like the one that she goes out on and the one that the person was killed at the beginning. It's a great building though. Because otherwise I was trying to figure, I guess the balconies had to be somewhere else or else it was a weird continuity error in the movie because there were no balconies on the front of yeah, the building. Yeah, they're, they're on the back. If you walk around the side, you can see them sticking out. It's a, it's a unique design and that's why I even... Like rec- as I was watching it, when they showed the outside, I was like, oh, that building looks so familiar. And then as I was watching it, I looked it up and it's sure enough, it's 211 Madison. It's it's a great character actor, but for buildings. Mm-hmm. You just know where you've seen it. You just don't know where. That's what it is. That's what it is. So I've been talking a lot about this movie. What did you think of Sliver? I think I think most of what you probably think except not quite enough to like it in the sense that I felt like I was somehow being cheated because Joe Esterhaas is serving up complete insanity on the page and Paul Verhoeven is not there to turn it to a thousand. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. I'm not saying this movie is subdued in any way. You can't take an Esterhaas script and subdue it. Uh, the la- I mean, just the last line of this movie is the second most Esther Haas thing that we will discuss uh, in the second half of this podcast, and the only one I can say out loud on a clean podcast, which is Sharon Stone uh, <laughs> <Yep>. destroying <laughs> William Baldwin's video setup and then just walking out and telling him to get a life. <laughs> yep, get a life. Oh, man, it's... It's something. So getting back to the plot a little bit, Sharon Stone, she gets the telescope from a secret admirer and she, her computer gets hacked at work, which at what, so it turns out it's William Baldwin and this, I think it's the second time he does it because he hacks her computer more than once. How he does this, I have no idea. Just he's a computer just, video just game does. makers, so he it's, can hack it's, it's computers. The, it's the 
90s understanding of how computers work, which was, you know, just they were there so they could service the plot in completely unrealistic ways. Yeah, so he hacks her computer a second time, seemingly deleting her work because she's working, like she's typing something out, a document, and then it's just it's just gone and he starts typing to her and then she's just fine with it. She's totally cool with it because he somehow prints a flower on the screen. You so know, she's just like, all right. At least in The Crush, that movie was able to understand early on that the worst nightmare that can ever happen to you is that something is that something you're working on on your that the file just vanishes. This movie doesn't even understand just how infuriating that would be. Well, that's that's the thing that I don't quite understand about Sharon Stone's character is that she doesn't seem concerned when things happen and she should definitely be concerned. Like the telescope thing, the computer hacking thing, the first time Tom Berenger shows up at her house, like she comes home and he's just in her house and she's just, she's like, what are you doing here? And he's just like, Oh, the door's open. And then she just lets it go. I don't think she looks visibly bothered until the last 20 minutes of this movie, which is saying a lot considering how much happens over the course of this movie. Yeah. Five people die before she looks in any way upset by it. Yeah, it's it's really bizarre. So she's being courted by Tom Berenger and William Baldwin. She she goes for William Baldwin and he she agrees to go out on a date with him and he takes her to work out on their first date. He takes her to the gym, which I what, thought was uh what a stroke kind of, of romantic genius. <laughs> yeah. And I love his he's got his like leather weight belt on and he's just like He's just pumping weights and she's just sitting there watching it. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. And then, and then they go back to his place and she goes, so the scene starts with him giving her a beer and she goes, so you really do have a beer. And he goes, I told you it wasn't a ruse. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? What did what did we miss there? Was there a conversation involved where he was like, "Hey, I have beer at my place," and she's like, "No, I don't believe you." <laughs> it's just, and, and it's it's lines like that, it's dialogue like that that just it litters this movie. That it's so over the top, it's laughable, and it's not good. But I just had such a fun time with it. In that same scene, I think it was that same scene. Then maybe it was a, a later scene when she was over at his place. It was the first time that they actually hooked up. I They're, want to talk about the curtains in his bedroom, which are like translucent blackout curtains, which does not mean it should not exist at all because they like <laughs> cancel out all the light, but you can still see through them. Yeah, that really know. troubled me a lot. <laughs> well, his his whole play, his whole apartment was something mm. else. Uh, the, my favorite part of his apartment was the volcano, <laughs> because they're getting they're like starting to get a little hot and heavy. And she goes, "What's that?" And he goes, "That's oh, a volcano. I really love mm. them." And he goes, "I'd like to fly into one sometime." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. It's a crystal volcano that's like at the foot of his bed. And then as they're making love during this very sensual scene, you can prominently see the glowing crystal volcano that's at the foot of the bed. 
It looks like the uh, a piece of the aggro crag from Nickelodeon's guts. I refuse to believe that 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 exists anywhere. So that means that they had to make that for this film. And imagine, I mean, of course, if you're working on this kind of thing, you've had like in with props, you've had to make some insane stuff in your life. But that's one of those few things where it doesn't even sound right when it's being described in any context it's a volcano so so like so so like the kind you make in school no it's a crystal volcano i think it would have been a lot funnier if it was like the kind you make yeah. in school and uh-huh. he just had it there and she's <laughs> and like oh like... what's this and he's like oh i gotta show you this i gotta show you this you got wait till you see this. This is so cool. You pour vinegar in and then you put a little baking soda in and watch it erupts. I want to fly into one of these. <laughs> I'm not un, I'm not completely convinced that there is not a deleted scene where that conversation is had. Perhaps. It's just the volcano, crystal volcano. So they have a little thing going, the two of them. And meanwhile, Sharon Stone, she's she's busy at work, uh, and she is constantly accosted by this coworker of hers, who may be the most inappropriate coworker I've ever seen in a Our movie. She, insultingly written. It, it's it's she's possibly the horniest coworker in existence. I can't even wrap my head around some of the stuff that this woman says. It's so over the top. Once again, this is like a classic Joe Esterhaus creation of thinking uh, what a <laughs> human yeah, what, sounds like. What, what if he, what a he's human like, woman sounds like? Yeah, he's like sitting. He's like sitting at his typewriter. I'm assuming he uses a typewriter mm-hmm. or maybe like one of those really old word processors. It's like a standalone word processor thing. No, I can imagine that. And like the most 90s office with like the low coffee tables everywhere. And he's <laughs> yeah. just sitting there. He's like, okay, what is what does this broad say? I'm going to make her really horny and talk about <laughs> penises all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So they go on this other date and he... She she tries to get him, or no, he, he goes, let's go get truffles. And she's like, I don't have anything to wear. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't have anything to wear? You don't have anything to wear to go get truffles? Like, what what do you have? Do you, do you need, like, a special truffle blouse it's, it's or something? It's a truffle outfit. It's a traditional garb. Uh and also another sign that this movie feels like all of the lines of dialogue were cut out, put into a hat, picked out randomly, and then reassigned. It's, yeah. And that, of course, leads to one of the most drawn out and pointless scenes in the whole movie where he's he buys her this underwear and he's like trying to get her to show it to him in the restaurant. And she's like taking it off and people are uncomfortable and I was uncomfortable watching it. And <laughs> I, will, I just want, I can, I like, 
It's amazing. I saw this a couple days ago, and I can't really remember that scene all that much because I think I blocked it out of my memory. It was horrible. And then, of course, uh, people start dying. So she's researching the building. She's researching the death of the, or the former tenant where she's living now. And people start dying. And uh, it, it is revealed that... William Baldwin has these cameras. He doesn't tell her at first that he's the owner of the building. And he also doesn't tell her that he has this elaborate camera set up. But he I does. Mean, that's something you only tell very special people in your life. Yeah. that You wait. You wait till like the fourth or fifth date mm-hmm. to, re- to reveal your, your lair, your secret lair of cameras. Any can, anybody can go on a gym date or a truffle outfit date. But the, but once you show them the cameras, that's when it's serious. <laughs> yeah. When you break out the camera lair. Mm-hmm. So she sees it. She's appalled by it at first, but she gets over it pretty quickly and then sort of becomes infatuated with this system where she's just watching all of these people. And then they start to get involved with uh, their, like, there's a lot of awful people in this building and they start to get involved with like, helping this like little girl that's being abused and stuff like that. And um, it's like Esther house is trying to make a statement about the voyeuristic nature of man or something, but I thought he was trying to make a statement about uh, the surveillance state that didn't go anywhere. (laughs) It's well, either way, the idea is half baked. It doesn't work. Whatever he's trying to get a, across about modern society and and our voyeuristic nature or something it just doesn't work uh it's it comes off as being very uh surface level and nothing about it is thought-provoking the more i think about sharon stone's character and how she reacts to everything she really is like me when i disassociate when i'm just so upset that i don't care about anything anymore (laughs) because (laughs) like it takes her a while to start realizing the magnitude of what's going on yeah she she just brushes it off like at first she seems upset about the cameras but then she just kind of rolls with it and it and it isn't until she like has him delete the tape of them having sex. And then like he sees her, she sees his like secret hiding place for tapes. And then like when she finds these other tapes, that's when she like loses it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a very strange threshold. And then, so you have, that you have the love triangle you have the cameras and then you have the murder mystery that's happening here and everybody thinks it's tom berenger and we're led to believe that tom berenger was framed for this because we all think it's william baldwin but turns out it was it was tom berenger yeah all along apparently the story there is that the uh the original cut of the film uh they they uh they had to edit it uh to get an r rating and for some reason this necessitated reshooting the entire ending and thus 
changing the killer's identity, uh, according to this authoritative Wikipedia article I'm looking at right now. So it was originally going to be William Baldwin, as you're led to suspect, but then in the fin- in the theatrical cut of the film, it's Tom Berenger, which really doesn't work, because then no. it's like, yeah, it doesn't work at all, because it's <laughs> like, oh, you think it, everyone thinks it's this guy, but it's actually this other guy, and no, it's actually the person that everybody <laughs> yeah. the entire time. Well, the, the re- one of the reasons it doesn't work is because they set it up so that he was framed. Like, they seemed to they they made it apparent that like evidence was planted in his apartment and all of this stuff. And it just didn't work yeah, for, framing, for us. Framing a guilty person is just, you can't, it's, it's you're producing evidence framing. You can't <laughs> right. frame a, if you're you, a guilty person that shows up with evidence with like indicative uh, circumstances, it's just evidence. <laughs> the way that they developed the William Baldwin's character they made him seem like a, a psychopath. Like he was, he was like a sociopath and it seemed pretty obvious that it was going to be him. And I thought a large portion of the movie was the fact that he was just, he was so cunning and he, he had access to the cameras and everything in the building. So he was going to be able to like smartly, frame Tom Berenger for his crimes and then, you know, do all this stuff. And then of course there was like the scene in the stairwell when the other woman gets killed and Tom Berenger is there like over her body. And it's like, well, if he did it, then why are we seeing him? You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, they wouldn't make a point to showing him over her body and make it so obvious that it essentially establishes the point where the movie, no matter what it does after that point, does not work. Like, it set up a point where it would be physically impossible for anyone to have done everything that it's assumed that they did. Exactly. I still had a good time with it, but man, it's, yeah, it's pretty rough. <laughs> and the, like, the UB40 song, uh, it only plays twice. I can't help falling in love. I, I think that's the name of the song, but it, we talked, we actually talked about it before on, yes. on this show and it's such a weird song to attach to a movie because it, it doesn't absolutely not be there. It doesn't it, both times that it plays in, in the movie, it doesn't seem to fit and very strange, very strange decision to attach that song with that movie. That feels like some sort of weird placement deal that was very, very shoehorned in. Yeah. Yeah, it might have been. Uh, Oh, I am now encountering the other authoritative scholarly source, the IMDb trivia page, in which it is claimed that Joe Esterhaus not only did not write the line, Get a Life, that was a reshoot thing, he apparently does not like that line. I guess it's I guess it's like when someone tries to imitate you and it just and you just feel like they're not getting it. I, I think he's just bitter because he didn't think of it himself. Yeah. I mean, if I had to bet my entire life savings on a line written by Joe Esterhaus, that would have been it. Get a life. Right after she blows up his TV command center. I don't think he doesn't like that line because it's bad. I think, you're right. I think he doesn't like it because he didn't write it. That's what I think. 
Why is the L in sliver on the poster red? And it's also in italics. Yeah. That is a fantastic question. I mean, it's not like, because at first I thought, oh, well, is it like an upside down seven? Is it supposed to be like a seven thing? But then, but nobody is in apartment seven or anything like that. It doesn't make any sense. Then it looks like you're just saying liver. I don't get it. Or S.L. Iver. Or there's so many ways you can break up that word now. Well, at first when I was looking at it, I was like, okay, so the tagline is right up above it. It says, you you like to watch, don't you? And don't you is also in red. So then I don't was like, okay. Well, I was like, okay, is it is it a red thing? Is it don't you L? Hmm. Nope. I'm not sure. It does have the orange and teal pattern. And I actually kind of like the, the the title. I think that it's kind of a cool idea because he's watching like slivers of people's lives and stuff on the cameras. And it's called us. And, and you know, the type of building, of course, is uh, a sliver building. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it works in a lot of different ways, as any good title should. Yeah. It's a it's a good poster, except for all of the text, basically. I mean, I, f- I feel like it's a very deliberate thing, and I just want to know, like, what it is. I, I I can't imagine that it's a random thing, but I just have no idea what it is. Maybe it's in that ending that got thrown out. Somebody, somebody tell us. Next up, we have another Michael Douglas movie. This time based on a Michael Crichton novel and co-starring Demi Moore. Released on December 9th, 1994, this is Disclosure. Get back here and you finish what you started or you're dead. Do you hear me? You are dead! From the provocative bestseller of seduction, power, and betrayal. They're setting me up. Michael Douglas, Demi Moore, Disclosure, rated R. Starts Friday, December 9th. Directed by Barry Levinson, Disclosure stars Douglas as a computer specialist who is falsely sued for sexual assault by a former lover-turned-boss, which threatens both his career and his personal life. Adam, why don't you get us started on Disclosure? Uh, I thought it was all right. The It's funny because like, when you think of Michael Crichton, you immediately think of Jurassic Park, but then you could also think about like his other science fiction stories and to learn that he wrote this uh book i'm just like it doesn't really seem to fit but then as the film progresses you start to to see the the sort of sci-fi or technology laced through line with uh michael douglas playing this like software engineer type person and then Towards the end, the end is my favorite. Oh, yeah. And I might be getting ahead of myself, but we'll have to get into it. Everything <laughs> the whole that end. happens in this movie is bizarre in a bad way, but that is somehow more bizarre in a bad way than all of the other things put together. Yeah, it is. It is something else. It is something else. First, I'll say I think that this movie needs a remaster. Uh, the version that I saw 
which was rented on demand looked pretty rough. Like there was a lot of like dust particles and, and spots on the, on the transfer. It looked like, like it had been dragged through gravel. Yeah. I think that this could use a remaster cause that was not a very pleasant, uh, <laughs> uh, watch. And I guess it's an interesting film to watch in 2019 with the, yes. with, you know, we're, we're in the me too era right now. And this is a film about sexual misconduct. And I think that it's an interesting story because it is, you, you have a gender reversal here, mm-hmm. which I think while undoubtedly perpetrated predominantly by men, it's important to realize that it can go both ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is sort of an interesting counterpoint to something like fatal attraction where, you know, Michael Douglas is on the other end of uh, the harassment where he plays this software developer guy up for a big promotion. His company's about to go through a merger. Donald Sutherland plays the, the big boss and it turns out that he is not getting the promotion that they're bringing in someone from, I, I guess, it, does she work for the same, is, does she work for the company that they're merging with? Um, or does she work for just like another division within the company that Michael Douglas is with? I believe it's like she's from the, the company that they're merging with. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember, but at any rate, this is a they, movie not terribly concerned with specifics or nuances. No, they they end up bring uh, making Demi Moore the the vice president instead of Michael Douglas, and he's a little bitter about it. Just uh, f- not f- just for being passed over, but it turns out that the two of them had a relationship many years ago, and like her first day. Like her first day there, she she's like, "Oh, let's let's catch up over uh, have have a glass of wine in my office. Stop by my office around seven. So he does, and she uh, she tries to she tries to have sex with him right there in the office. And he's he's a happily married man. He has two kids. He doesn't want any of it. He isn't. He is not a willing participant. And the next day she ends up uh, filing a harassment claim against him. The politics of this movie are a lot to take in, in 2019 (laughs) Uh, because it doesn't even feel like it's (laughs) examining the idea of that. Yes. Sexual misconduct men can and are, the victim of a lot, but the movie, the movie doesn't terribly interested in this. It's just kind of about this, these bizarre characters in this bizarre world with a bizarre series of events that does not seem to have any terrible interest in exploring its subject matter in any way, except the most uh, lurid and negative. Yeah. Well, plus the whole, sexual harassment thing, which I thought was that I thought that that was like the main 
plot of the movie and everything else was sort of just filler. They were just like tertiary things, but the, that whole thing, the, the, the harassment thing gets wrapped up, um, what halfway through maybe. And then you have all this extra stuff afterwards, which is more like almost like this political, uh, or corporate espionage type thing where Michael Douglas discovers that he was sort of sabotaged by Demi Moore and, you know, they're, they're getting their chips from Malaysia and they're not the right chips and things are not right with these chips, which was, that was one of the things that bugged me anytime they have movies that, that take place in like tech companies or it's software companies. And they just, they don't bother doing any kind of like research or anything to make it even somewhat within the realm of realism. Like the, yeah. there's, there's entire meetings in this movie that they just spout random techno babble that makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Not only is this movie not in any way interested in accuracy in terms of its, you know, technological jargon, this movie also does not seem to understand how any company or social structure or at all would work. Like this is a collection of humans that do not feel like they've ever worked with another human before. <laughs> No. In any there, context. Yeah. So you have like Dennis Miller, who is working for Michael Douglas, who immediately backstabs him by, I, I guess what they asked him to do was to reveal the harassment claim to his wife. I, I don't know what they thought that would do, but he did it. And so much so many of the actions of these people make little to no sense whatsoever like uh, another example large part of this movie is a mediation between douglas and demi moore and they're trying to work it out they're trying to figure out exactly what happened during this this whole thing and they end up calling in michael douglas's assistant I guess she is. And she blatantly says that he uh, pats her on the butt during work and, and rubs her shoulders without her like giving any kind of consent. And then they just like, let it go. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's the end of it. Now he, he does like talk to her later on, but still like he, it almost changed it almost changes how we feel about Michael Douglas. Yes. Completely because it's like he's supposed to be this like stand-up guy. He's loyal to his wife and all of this stuff. This this terrible thing happened to him, but you know, he resisted. Although he does like he seems to go along with the kissing at least. Um yeah, like once again, this movie has nothing if not complete contempt for all of its characters. Like so, it doesn't even seem to like Michael Douglas all that much. No, not, not at all. 
This movie takes the single most regressive uh, analysis of all of its subjects. It's very, very bizarre. So, like, while they're doing this this mediation thing, he's still working. Like, he's still trying to figure out what's going on. Because I guess they, and I don't even know if they say what this is until the toward like the very end of the movie. But they're developing us like a CD-ROM drive that's like super fast or something, and. <laughs> But I'm pretty sure they don't say what it even is until the end. But there's like a problem with it. And at first he doesn't know that it's Demi Moore who sort of sabotaged him. Why she did this, I don't even know. Like, I don't know. She Like, she already became the vice president. Did she just... Like, was it her plan all along to try to ruin him or... Did she genuinely want to cut corners by making those changes to the manufacturing of these things? And then once she realized she screwed up, she tried to like blame it on him. Like, I'm not sure what her difficult to understand because I think once again, we have to return to the fact that, a central problem of all of these movies is that no human has ever done any of these things. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think so. Mm. Then we finally get to the good stuff when Michael Douglas realizes that it was, it was Demi Moore behind this, this whole thing. So he sneaks into a hotel room of, I guess, um, an executive of the company they're they're doing the the merger with, who has a like a prototype of this VR set, and he he hooks himself into this VR set, and I guess because it's a prototype, it just has access to all of the files in the whole company, <laughs> like unrestricted access to every file in the whole company, so he hooks into this VR thing and it turns into like the lawnmower man and <laughs> it goes into this VR world where he's trying to access the files, but then Demi Moore logs in at the same time and she's deleting the files. <laughs> and the best, the, the best part about that is the command that she types in to delete the files is do it slash kill all. <laughs> I, uh, it, like, it says a lot about just how completely incoherent everything that happens in this movie is that that entire part, that virtual reality finale happens, and I was barely phased by it at that point. And I was like, yeah, that would be where this goes next. Uh, like, it, it was so out of left field. It was just, tur- it, it just turns into this, like, cyber thriller all of a sudden. Goes from erotic thriller to cyber thriller. Yeah. Uh, this feels like... Now, I have not read the Michael Crichton novel. I have no intention to, if it is anything like this movie. But it feels like something that just kind of <laughs> got written all at once. <laughs> something tells me that the Crichton novel focused a lot more on the the corporate espionage slash techno stuff as opposed to the uh, er- erotic 
thriller I want to believe moments. it was all that all the te- all the techno espionage stuff they just added more things around it to so they wouldn't have to uh so that they wouldn't have to make the movie entirely set in a virtual reality world and like <laughs> raise the budget to 300 million dollars yeah so <laughs> they they wrap up the whole harassment thing very quickly they they're doing this back and forth with the mediation and then Michael Douglas realizes that he called somebody on his cellular telephone and he called the wrong person and he didn't hang up the phone and the person's answering machine ended up recording the whole incident. (laughs) And once, once he figured out who it was, he just got the tape and then that was the end of it. (laughs) Like that was, that was all she wrote (laughs) when it, when it comes to that. And then, and then they throw that whole thing away and go into the whole, the whole corporate espionage angle. And that gets wrapped up because guess what? He realizes, Oh, video calls are two way. So I'll just take the files off the other computer on the other end. And that wraps everything up with that. Can we also talk about how, all of his, uh, the, all of the, the, so Michael Douglas gets a bunch of these strange sort of, Oh my God. Yes. Warnings. Email. Yes. Someone signed a friend and how this resolves is it's because essentially what happened is that a, um, the son uh, yes. of the son of a woman who is in one other scene I guess she was she was in the running for the VP job as well. Yes, one of his coworkers has a son who is the lab assistant to to a professor. A professor named Arthur Friend, <laughs> a friend. And so the son has the the key to and the to the lab and access to the computer system and so while the professor is away he has his mother come in to send these messages to michael douglas signed a friend and that is the least ridiculous thing that happens in this movie by the way yeah i i loved that final scene when he's talking to the son and he's just like a a friend and the guy just like smiles and it's like yep (laughs) it's just (laughs) it feels like an ending that was that that they were that they were like improvising that feels like completely that that does not feel like it was written down anywhere i don't think so it's it's so it's so stupid uh this movie was entire uh, movie improvised is this like like an experimental improv project i mean Listening to the stuff that they would say during these board meetings and and all of that, I, I think I would think yes, that it, it was entirely improvised. <laughs> just a bunch of people that were just sitting down, and then Levinson just rolls the camera and has them go for seven hours, and then cuts it down to the thirty seconds that he needs. I had fun with it, like the others. I had fun with with this one. I enjoyed watching it, but like some of the others that we discussed. It, this is pretty bad. It is. I had more. I had a better time with most of the other movies, actually, just because this one, it's 
slightly over the top, but it it doesn't go into like Esterhouse territory. Like it's, it's not. Movie, the worst part is it's a movie convinced that it has something to say, and it really doesn't. No, it it really doesn't doesn't have much to say at all, especially after we discover that Michael Douglas is a sexual harasser when he's uh-huh. s- smacking the butt of his assistant. And then I love how they, when they do revisit that, she's, she's just like, look, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean anything. And he's like, I know. <laughs> and then they smile at each other and laugh and that's yeah, it. So yeah, this movie does not have anything to say about sexual harassment. It is, it is very, very regressive. It has nothing to say about anything it thinks it wants to say. The technology in this movie is a fever dream. And the least crazy thing is the A friend plot twist. And otherwise, it's just <laughs> a completely technologically illiterate movie that turns out to uh, be pro-sexual harassment. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty leave much. This one, leave this one in 1994. Yes, please. Do you know? I don't think that this is... For every reason. Yeah. I don't think this is going to do anyone any favors. So Mm -hmm. let's let's leave this behind. I will say that that Demi Moore was really good in this, though. Like, that final... The sort of... That final sort of monologue that she has at the end when she's like... When she loses it on Michael Douglas in the the big meeting. I thought that was really well delivered. And I mean, Michael Douglas was, was good, too. I mean, he's always good. Yeah. Uh, like there is there is some some point of uh of comfort like feeling like there's somehow order in the universe uh which is why uh, when there's people that you see in every movie which is why i admire like the star system where that would be such a focus i like the fact that from that through the 90s people like michael douglas seemingly starred in every movie that came out during that period (laughs) yep yep and played really the same character in all of them Pretty much, yeah, yeah. I mean, his his character in this was very similar to his character in the game. Mm-hmm. A very similar character. The game is so good. I know, right? Uh-huh. I I, re, I revisit that movie every every couple of years. Like every other year, I'll rewatch that movie, and it's just it never never gets old. It's always such a great time. There's plenty more intrigue and betrayal coming up, so stick around. Saved by the 90s. We'll be right back. From Danielle Steele's bestseller, Once in a Lifetime. A tragedy took her husband, now a single mother, afraid to love, is torn between two men. I never want to feel that kind of pain again. But which one will help them become a family again? I love you. Lindsay Wagner in the new Danielle Steele, Once in a Lifetime, Tuesday, February 15th. (laughs) Are you familiar? with the story that John Waters tells where, you know, he makes, he likes to make a lot of cameos in other movies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he has this like v- apparently very small part in a Daniel Steele adaptation that just played a lot on like basic cable through the rest of the, the decade. And he said, you know, uh, in Baltimore, like the, like the women that work at the checkout line, in his grocery store only knew him from the Daniel Steele, uh, I think it was like <laughs> adaptation and that's the only thing they would talk about to him whenever they saw him because that's the only thing that they knew him from. That's, that's amazing. John Waters has an amazing career. I love John Waters. I could just, so I could listen. I, I went to see him once and I would any, any time that he's like speaking anywhere close to where I am, I'm, I'm going to see him because 
He's just, I could listen to him talk and tell oh, stories yeah. I could, forever. I, could, I would, I would listen to him talk about basically anything for any amount of time. Yeah. Coming off the success of My Own Private Idaho, director Gus Van Sant switched gears for a short time, directing a string of popular music videos before returning to the big screen with his next film, an erotic thriller starring Nicole Kidman. Released on October 6th, 1995, this is To Die For. Murder. My wife will kill me. Scandal. Did you get those kids to kill your husband? Bang. You're not anybody in America unless you're on TV. Who says you can't have it all? Who do you think is your The most exhilarating American movie since Pulp Fiction. Columbia Pictures presents Ooh. Nicole Kidman. It's nice to live in a country where life, liberty, and all the rest of it still stand for something. To Die For. Rated R. Now in New York and Los Angeles. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. In the film, Kidman plays an aspiring television personality who films a documentary on teenagers with a darker, ulterior motive. Now, Ken, according to the trailer we just listened to, was it the, was it the most exciting film since Pulp Fiction? That is an incredible comparison. <laughs> <laughs> that is the trademark of, like... A marketing campaign that had no idea what to do with this movie and just picked the nearest thing that they could and it was just something that was not a conventionally told narrative and so they were like obviously the closest thing to this movie (laughs) is pulp fiction like seriously these movies could not be further apart from each other there's there's no similarities in these two movies whatsoever (laughs) anyone involved with cutting that trailer or that marketing campaign rather actually saw this movie <laughs> unbelievable now i'm i'm going to i'm going to guess you are a gus van zant fan is that correct yeah pretty much i am not as well versed on his filmography as i should be like Something like Elephant, for example, is a movie that I really find interesting and also <laughs> am completely baffled as to why he made it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's an interesting director. I know some of the like Gus Van Sant purists do not like some like the kind of the more mainstream stuff he made, like Milk or something, but I think that's fine too. Uh, he's a good director, and I also like this movie quite a bit. Nicole Kidman is straight up transcendently good in this movie. She is. Yeah. I mean, this, this, she's on a different plane of existence than all of us mortals in this movie. She, she is fantastic in this movie. I wasn't a big fan of this. I am really hit or miss with, with Gus Van Zandt. And I think I dislike more of his stuff than I like. And this is, movie just i found a lot of it to be very grating i don't like this style of dark comedy mostly involving like plots to kill people done in a, in a comedic way I, I find that it typically doesn't go far enough one way or the other and then it ends up being just in this kind of strange middle area where it's not really that funny but it's also not particularly thrilling either it's just sort of sort of a nothing 
I will concede that the amount to which that it's built up that Nicole Kidman's character is going to plot to have her husband's husband murdered, it's weirdly anticlimactic after it actually happens. Yeah. So so you have Nicole Kidman is playing Suzanne Stone, who is this young go-getter. She wants to be on TV. She's obsessed with uh, reporters, like jur- news journalists, uh, TV journalists, talk show hosts, all of all of those people. She just wants to be on TV. She wants to be on TV delivering the news, and she'll do anything to get what she wants. And she, very early on in the film, she meets and falls in love with this guy named Larry, played by Matt Dillon. They get married. She's pursuing her dream. He's working for his father's bar and she feels like i guess she like i don't know if she designed it to be a sort of career springboard uh his death like i'm not mm-hmm. sure if that's what she intended well, another, or or if she yeah, another part of it was that uh, she feels that he's holding her back. Right. He, he doesn't yeah. want her to pursue her career. Yeah, that's that. That was the next thing I was going to say. Is I don't know if she wanted to use his death as a springboard for her career, or that she wanted him out of the way uh, because he she felt like he was holding her back. I think, uh, or, or maybe it was both. Yeah, I think the character. The second one, the second thing was the primary motivation, but. The first one, the fact that the first one was also there didn't hurt. I, I don't, thinking about it now, I, I don't know if her character was smart enough to really think about it that way. She's, she's not a very bright person in this movie. She, she knows what she wants and she can do whatever she can to get it, but I think it, that's pretty much as far as it extends. So she's, she gets a job as a, as a, person delivering the weather on this late night local cable access station. And she comes up with this idea of making a documentary about local high schoolers. So she starts making this documentary about uh, these kids. One's played by Joaquin Phoenix. The other's played by Casey Affleck. And uh, the other one is played by Allison Foland, I believe. Yes. And, she ends up sleeping with Joaquin Phoenix in order to coax him into killing her husband. Uh, the, the movie will, it starts off as a mockumentary and it, and it periodically will jump back and forth between a mockumentary with like interviews. And then it also incorporates this like talk show, footage of the parents like on a talk show and none of that particularly worked for me either like i understand what he was doing there like because it was sort of playing into the whole uh you know tv culture thing but i I didn't i didn't find it particularly endearing Uh, and the entire sequence of events is kind of also based on a, a real thing that happened that's um yeah, uh, as as one does, I I uh, sometimes spend uh, part of like a Saturday afternoon just on Wikipedia reading about famous crimes, uh, and I have read about like the Pamela Smart uh, murder, who was a she was a woman living in um, 
coastal New Hampshire, uh, which is where this movie is set, like the small coastline of New Hampshire, who uh, seduced a uh, local teenager, essentially. Yeah, like, like tried to get and basically got him and his friends to murder her husband, which is the kind of thing that feels like the germ of a movie on its own. Like you could totally do something completely bizarre with just that idea. And of course that whole thing was a great big media circus at the time. So what I think is interesting with what Van Sant does is that he would take the proclivity to focus on these lurid stories adapts it and then turns it itself into a commentary on like the media i didn't i didn't like the the mockumentary stuff i mean i thought elena douglas was awesome but uh, i love her and everything and i thought she was really funny Thought she was really funny in this but you know nothing nothing else really did it for me i I like the score. Uh, Danny Elfman did the score and I did, I did enjoy that. It was this sort of uh, twisted, like Americana style that he was sort of doing a lot with Tim Burton back then. And I enjoyed that, Mm. that, that sort of like fifties, you know, picket fence style. I I don't know if that's a Mm. good, description of that <laughs> I, I, I know i know what you mean though uh just on a thematic level i suppose but yeah i do i do enjoy uh primarily just how good nicole kidman is in this i note now that she was nominated for the bafta won the golden globe and if you know anything about oscar prognostication now that would be a major warning sign that uh that you might break into the oscar race but of course the 1995 academy would never get within 3000 miles of a performance like this in a movie like this out of curiosity who won that year that year uh susan sarandon won for dead man walking okay well that's understandable this movie reminded me a lot of the movie I Love You to Death from 1990. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've uh, seen this one. It's the one with Tracy Ullman. Very similar mm-hmm. plot. A lot funnier. But it was Tracy Ullman plays a, a wife who decides that she wants to kill her husband. And she employs the help of uh, River Phoenix, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. And tries to get him to kill, uh, kill her husband, uh, River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. Actually, I just enjoy getting to see a getting to see a phoenix. Yeah, and uh, very very young, mm-hmm. very young River Phoenix and Casey Affleck in this. Joaquin. I think this was, yeah, sorry, yeah, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, this was one of Casey Affleck's first movie roles might have been i think it was like his second actually but yeah it was it was kind of interesting to see see them he didn't have much to do joaquin phoenix had a lot more he, he had a meteor role kurtwood smith in there again coming back to old kurtwood yeah once again a lot of and, 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 and wayne, wayne yeah and wayne knight was in this yeah, too he played like the the owner of the station other movies this on this episode was also in this movie too yeah, that's all I really have to say about it. This this just didn't didn't 
land for me. It was fine. Like in my Gus Van Zant ranking, it's certainly not at the bottom. I haven't seen all of his movies, but I've seen most of them. And I don't know, it'd probably be somewhere in the middle for me. I think it's probably on the, the, the upper half for me. Once again, it's hard, it's hard to play uh, around with that. Because there are so many of his uh, of his movies where if your opinion changes on it slightly, you come away with a completely different conclusion about what you felt about it. Like, there's a lot of interesting things happening in the Psycho remake, but if your opinion goes slightly different one way or the other, you have no use for it. I think Elephant's that way too, where if you're... Like, the angle that you're looking at it, it changes slightly. It seems like a completely unnecessary mess. Mm-hmm. That won the Palm Door that year. That that is a choice. I don't even know if that's a good <laughs> choice or a bad choice. That is a fascinating choice. Any any other thoughts on to die for? It's just I feel like I, I didn't say a lot about it, but it's it was the last movie I watched for this in preparation for this show, and it it stuck with me the least like I remember the least about this one. And it was, it's the one that's most fresh in my mind. (laughs) And yet it's, it was just like, there wasn't anything inherently bad about it. I think the big turnoff for me was the, the documentary style. And hmm, I don't know. Yeah. I could see, I could see it working a little bit tighter if it didn't have that element to it. Our last feature this month is yet another one written by Joe Esterhaus, this time being dire- being directed by the one and only William Friedkin. Released on October 13th, 1995, this is Jade. Kyle Metrick's dead. Oh my God, I just saw him today. You did? Jade. How could you let them do this to you, Trina? They didn't do anything to me, David. It was my choice. I was in control and I liked it. Há mulheres com fantasias secretas. What did the tape turn you on? Há mulheres com vidas secretas. You know, a couple of those creeps, they didn't even want me. If you're going to charge her, you charge her right now. It was all right in front of me. I just didn't want to see it. Mas certas fantasias. Now, if you're wondering, that was the Portuguese... TV spot because I couldn't find one in English mm-hmm. and the full length trailer had no narration or anything. So listening to it without actually seeing the trailer made no sense whatsoever. I, li- I like that. We were able to find the Portuguese trailer though. <laughs> yeah. A San Francisco assistant DA investigating the murder of a high profile businessman discovers a tangled web of blackmail and corruption. Complicating matters further, an ex of his turns out to be a key suspect. Now, quick story on what I just read out there. Usually for this show, we will just kind of use the synopses from like IMDb or, you know, the one that gets copy pasted over the entire internet. Uh, Mm -hmm. But none of the ones that were there made any sense. And so 
I didn't understand that until I watched the movie. And then as an experiment myself and to get a better synopsis, I tried to write it myself. And that's what I just read there. But it took <laughs> me like 10 minutes to try and figure out and remember anything that had actually happened in this movie because nothing and everything happens in this movie at once. <laughs> it's so it's so funny you said that because when when I'm preparing these these scripts that we read off of, uh, often I will just paste in the the synopsis and then later go back and and make edits or changes as necessary and when i was when i initially pasted this one in i read it and i thought to myself i don't understand anything of what what that is saying like i don't i don't get that at all but maybe after i go back and after i actually watch the movie it'll become clear (laughs) Turns out, oh. turns out that everybody was just trying their best. So I thought this was going to be my least favorite of the bunch mm-hmm. because I don't like, I'm a huge fan of William Friedkin, first of all. So that, that was one of the things that like had me feeling somewhat positive going into it, but I'm not a big fan of, uh, of, of David Caruso. I, I just don't like his his line delivery. I think I think I think we've covered this before, probably on this very yeah. podcast. Uh, but he has the greatest career track of anyone. Really, just perfectly in control of what he's doing. Because he, because uh, you know, by the time that uh, CSI Miami rolls around, he's not quite where he used to be. But it, you know, it happens. But he takes that role. He is there on every episode of however many bajillion episodes that that show ran. And then after it ends, he just retires. It's perfect. Well, and, and, it, and after starting this, I realized like, Oh, well, it's not that I didn't like David Caruso. It was like, I was just so used to seeing, I never watched the show, but just seeing the ads and stuff and clips yeah. of him as that character. I just sort of thought that that's, that's who, do people even That's... like people don't even primarily know him for NYPD Blue? It's been a long time since people primarily knew him for NYPD. Oh yeah, well yeah. I mean that's the thing. Like it's been so long, and he was on CSI for so long that I didn't i I disassociated him in any other role and only knew him from the CSI role. And, and I I was a big fan of NYPD Blue back in the day, mm-hmm. but. After starting this this movie, I realized like, oh yeah, like he, that's right, he's like a good actor. <laughs> he can actually like he he's actually a pretty good actor, and he is different in this somewhat different in this movie than his character is his one line one liner character in CSI. But this movie started off feeling like it was going to be a slog. Like just everything about it just. Uh, made me feel like, okay, this, I'm going to really have a hard time getting through this movie. I'm just going to be trudging through it, especially like that opening, the, the opening title sequence where it's like wandering through that house and it just felt like it was taking forever. Like we were just wandering through this house, floating through this house for like what seemed like 10 minutes. And then you had, we were going through the murder victims entire life in real time before he got murdered. Yeah, I mean, it was just incredible. Like, why is this taking so long? 
Like, I mean, the, the house is cool. Like, there's a lot of ornate stuff going on in this house. It's a, it's a very nice house, but let's get this movie going, people. <laughs> and then, you know, you hear this blood-curdling scream, and then we see what appears to be blood coming underneath the door. It does not look like blood. <laughs> what? But what was it really? Because that was not blood. It. I think maybe it was like CG. I think, I think it, it might have early. been actually. I was trying to figure out what it was. It looks like 1995 CGI. Yeah. Was- Where like CG back then, like everything was kind of like shiny. Like everything had a little like shimmer to it. And that's what this looked like. Or it looked like that. Or maybe uh, like the, the pink slime from Ghostbusters 2 <laughs> or something. It was not blood. But I'm, I'm almost certain it was CG. And so I was like, all right, we're not getting off on a on a on the right foot here with jade and or, or uh <laughs> or maybe the uh, the pink slime that the that was just today it was announced can now be legally sold in the US as ground beef <laughs> <laughs> there we go that's what it was thank you department I, uh, of agriculture so i was like really hesitant about this, but I, I will say that it, it did sort of rebound for me. And I, I thought that there were some aspects of this that were uh, pretty enjoyable. This also felt a little bit like a Giallo film to me, not certainly not on the same level as many Gialli, but similar. I would agree, except I don't know what happens in this movie, um, which is kind of great. Uh, first of all, I love that this like basic instinct is also set in San Francisco. So apparently I'm missing something in my uh, knowledge of recent uh, Californian history. And I missed the part in the early mid nineties when San Francisco had a reputation as the murder capital of America. Um, <laughs> this is another case of, Joe Esterhaz going through things that he does not quite understand. This is the biggest nitpick in the world, but I do kind of like the frequency through which, uh, so this, so this whole thing ends up getting caught up in a scandal that would potentially involve the governor of California played by the great Mm -hmm. Richard Crenna and the number of times that they just casually go and see the governor. I think this movie thinks that the (laughs) state capital of California is San Francisco. That is at least a two hour drive. (laughs) Yeah. They they made, (laughs) yeah, they made, they made it seem like he was just right there. Like his office was a block away because (laughs) the, the part like the assistant, like his assistant is always in the, he's always in the, the, like the precinct, mm-hmm. the, the governor's assistant, uh, the guy who would, uh, go on to be on that show mind hunters on Netflix, which I can't wait for that to come back. But yeah. also, uh, an amazing line, which does, uh, out of a movie entirely with amazing lines. This is one that did not mean to be amazing, but is now the, how poorly, uh, so, David Caruso goes to see the governor, says the murder victim has photographs of you with a prostitute. Governor says, you'd better drop this case unless you want much of the future in the state is Jerry Brown. Yeah. <laughs> now sounds like a compliment. 
uh, wait, you, you want him to you want him to release these scandals photos of you so we can turn around and serve a cumulative total of four terms as governor? <laughs> I mean, I did get it. This was at the point, like, after he had lost everything he was running for and it looked like he was finished. But still, amazing line in, in hindsight. It makes no sense at all. Well, David Caruso's response to that was, who's Jerry Brown? Yeah, so. who's Jerry Brown? <laughs> what you have here is... Caruso playing a he he's an assistant DA and he is investigating a a murder of this this rich guy and what he uncovers is uh, so he gets these photos of the governor having uh, relations with a, a woman and then that leads them to this like sex house that it turns out that his uh, friends wife i guess she's his friend too uh and he was like madly in love with her i guess at one point i guess he still is and she's involved in it as as well uh she's played by linda florentino then you have Chaz palmentary as the uh the the friend and i don't know it plays out sort of like a procedural but it's not great uh it's somewhat interesting as far as them figuring out, you know, is this some sort of like vast political conspiracy? And then you have some really interesting like action scenes in this, which I wasn't expecting. There's a very long, very lengthy car chase that happens at one point, which begins with the mowing down of a witness in, in this whole business and I thought that the car chase was actually pretty well shot. It got a little, it was a little frantic. It was a little shaky, but I thought it was a pretty good car chase. There's also this strange, uh, like uh, Chinese culture, uh, like integrated into it where the, like, which I, I, I don't yeah, really understand what any of that's no about. Anything at all. Uh, although I do like the amount of attention the first scene involving this plot thread has to do with people like playing Mahjong. Truly, uh, Jade walked so crazy rich Asians could run. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of it takes place in, or some of it takes place in Chinatown. And then part of the car chase goes through this parade. Very strange. Yeah. A lot of weird choices made with, None of them with this good. movie. None of them good. No. It's just a lot of choices. Like uh, a movie that somehow both un- unambiguously feels like it was written by Joe Esterhaas and also feels like it was rewritten by 75 people, all of whom had a philosophy to approaching screenwriting that was diametrically opposed to everyone else's. How <laughs> uh, did James Horner score which felt really out of place all the time. Like the, the music cues never really worked. And there, there was, however, you heard it in the trailer. There was some chanting. Mm-hmm. There, there was definitely some 90s chanting music that was going on in this. And there was, uh, being an erotic thriller, there, was a, a, there were some sex scenes involved. There was an extremely awkward really awkward sex scene involving uh, Linda Florentino and, and Chaz Palminteri who plays her husband. Absolutely. That was a, 
not very very strange uncomfortable sex scene that occurs not not absolutely not not good (laughs) did not like that nope one bit nope (laughs) uh i was just glad there wasn't an awkward caruso sex scene because that would have been even worse (laughs) (laughs) i mean may as well this movie is stupendously awkward so may as well go for it it's it's not nearly as as interesting as it thinks it is so once truths are revealed it's just like oh okay i mean the broad implication being that if it were uh if it were as interesting as it thinks it is it would also have to uh have a coherent plot structure right which which it definitely doesn't happen and you don't even know what the things are that are happening like yeah yeah i it's (laughs) it's very weird to me that this is the the whole movie looking at the whole movie, like Linda Florentino turns out to be like this, this, like she's like an escort to these people that she, she just like does it for fun. It's so bizarre. And like the whole, the, the, the title refers to this like high class escort that all of these like rich people would hire to have sex with them in their like sex palace or whatever <laughs> their, their beach house. And I, I got to find this one line that when they first found the, like the, the lake house or whatever, and they were like searching through it and they would find like all, like all of this paraphernalia. <laughs> and the one line that the guy said was so funny because Christelle Beluga, Wolfgang Puck, it's a house. That was the line I was talking about. That was the top, that was the most Joe Esterhaus line, maybe in his entire career. Yeah, it's Wolfgang Puck. I like that uh, was over what was really going on here. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's odd to me that, so... As 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 it states in the synopsis, when they first go to the crime scene of the original murder, Caruso's walking through the crime scene and he's yelling at everybody. He's like, get these people out of here. They're walking through my crime scene. They're they're tainting my crime scene. And then he goes over and just starts picking stuff up and looking at stuff without wearing gloves or anything. And it's like, dude, you're the one contaminating the crime scene. What are you doing? And then... <laughs> And then he p- finds this cufflink that happens to be the cufflink of this like club that he's a part of. And he tells his, like, I don't know why he doesn't keep it himself, but he implicates his, uh, I guess she's a, what is she? A, does she work for him or is she uh she's like an investigator that works for him or is she, does she work for the police? I'm not sure what her not sure. role is. I don't know what her role is. She might be a detective, but he gives it to her and he's like, don't log this. Just keep it. And she's (laughs) like, all right. (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) So they set up all, so they set up all these threads that they, they're like, okay, so we know that he is somehow involved with these people. And then all of a sudden, like Linda Florentino's 
character is implicated because she doesn't have an alibi and like it seems like maybe she knew the guy because she said that she saw him earlier that day uh and then like all of these you know layers start to uh, come to the surface but none of them really make a whole lot of sense and none of them seem very consequential to the overall story and it didn't in the end, you realize that like none of it mattered. Nothing, nothing in this movie mattered at the end. Yeah, it's like this movie basically ends the with everyone kind of in the same place that they started. <laughs> like it's it was all for like if if you didn't die over the course of the movie, you kind of just moved laterally. Yeah, unfortunately, the escort gets killed, mm-hmm. and then. Wait, who, who was driving the car that killed the escort? Was uh, that, was that Chaz Palminteri or did he have someone do it? Cause like he, it turns out, I think it turns out that he was like concerned about his wife getting, going to jail. So he started like covering everything up or something. Right. But then he gets killed, mm-hmm. and then the the twist is that like she was the one that did she was the one that did it right. Yeah, none of these plot twists mean anything either. <laughs> yeah. None oh, of the boy. actual plot develop. None of the plot arcs mean anything. None of the plot twists mean anything. None of the dialogue means anything. But that's really what makes this movie so much of a specimen of the gap between what a movie thinks it is and what it actually is. It makes me want Joe Esterhaus to be writing more because <laughs> it's like, I, I don't necessarily believe that what he writes is good, but it is always entertaining. Mm-hmm. You, you're, you're never going to come out of an Esterhaus film and be like, well, that was boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's not good. And it, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> I think one of the mo- most disappointing things about this uh, to me is that, that William Friedkin directed this mm-hmm. and it doesn't even feel like a William Friedkin movie. Really? I it mean, doesn't feel like, yeah, it doesn't feel like anybody's movie except maybe Joe Esther Oz's sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Joe yeah, that's, that's, sometimes. What, that's what we need. Uh, Verhoeven is back working. I think Esther has is kind of retired. Uh, but if we could somehow coax him to write one more, like, uh, to me, I don't know, maybe just synthesize all of his pre- previous scripts into one mega script, uh, including the ones that Verhoeven did not direct and get Verhoeven to direct them. Uh, then I think I would have all my all I need to finally confirm my theory. Uh, if this is just uh, the equilibrium of a screenwriter and a director accidentally being absolutely perfect for each other, do you ever look at at Joe Esterhaus's IMDb page? The the photo <laughs> of him it looks like he's in handcuffs being escorted away by police. That's the that's what uh, that image looks like. Apparently, this image is him at the premiere of showgirls so presumably he was being escorted away uh by the uh studio's accountants <laughs> <laughs> they're they're asking him politely to leave the theater <laughs> uh, 
three minutes into the movie and they're like, oh boy. <laughs> you gotta go. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's the, I think, I think Showgirl, I'm one of those Showgirls revisionists that thinks it's a masterpiece, but I think immediately, like three minutes in, they were like, this movie is going to lose so much money. And they were like, Joe, you gotta go. <laughs> Getting back to Jade, I just, um, if you think about it for any longer than like three minutes, it's the, the whole thing just crumbles and you're just like, what was that? I just watched. <laughs> None of it meant anything. Yeah, that's the difference between Esther Haas just straight up and Esther Haas through Verhoeven. Where Esther Haas straight up, you just think about it for three seconds and it disintegrates. Esther Haas through Verhoeven, you think about it for three seconds and you realize there's an entire second like layer of complete, of like deep and abundant satire uh, just waiting there underneath. And that's the difference. Because, yeah, it didn't really feel like Friedkin was doing much with this material. So it just kind of exists at the surface, uh, which is a little bit dangerous. It it just feels like this was a paycheck for him. I mean, I, I don't know if that's correct or not, but it just there's not, there's very little style here to speak of. There's, you know, a, a lot of Friedkin's movies are somewhat provocative, and I'm, not, I'm just not really seeing that. With this movie, there's just nothing. It's a pretty bog standard erotic thriller that that doesn't really elevate the genre in any way. Maybe he like signed on thinking it was going to be a different kind of movie. Then when he really looked at the at the at the script, three pages in, he had the same reaction that uh, in our head canon the uh, the studio executives did at the Showgirls premiere, where they were like, "Oh boy." <laughs> I want to point go. out. Showgirls and Jade came out within one month of each other. So press-wise, that was a terrible month for Esther Haas. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can say that he, kind of, that, like, he did a couple more things that really ended his career, but I'd say September, October 95 was kind of the end. Yeah, considering the budget for Jade was $50 million and it grossed 9.7. <laughs> <laughs> Why does this movie cost fifty million dollars? I mean, that was a huge loss. <laughs> Did they? I mean, a lot of there. There were two car chases in this, so I think a lot of it had to go towards I those. Guess. Then, then did they pay? Did they pay David Caruso thirty-five million dollars? <laughs> Is that where all this money came from? Like, <laughs> like, 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 he just gets, he got screwed over and paid scale for CSI Miami or something. His real money was the Jade salary. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. According to IMDb, William Freakin created a director's cut of this movie, which was approximately 12 minutes longer. And it, it added a few, it added quite a few scenes and it had a different ending. A lot of these movies have completely different endings. Well, so this says the, the it's on Hulu, which I don't think it's on Hulu anymore, although I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. I am not going to, I, uh, even I, I, not going to rewatch it? Going onto Hulu <laughs> and checking to see if it's there. And somehow that just feels like too much effort. I, I think I think it is. Again, I, I had fun with all of these movies. 
this was just a really good time. <laughs> I, I, I highly recommend, uh, for those of you looking for like a movie project to get into 90s erotic thrillers are just, they're a blast to go back and watch. I, oh, Jade has a 14% on Rotten Tomatoes, by the way. <laughs> because you look at all these movies and you think, 90s erotic thriller, absolutely none of that is going to play well at all in 2019. And it doesn't, but it's just incredible that for a brief, glimmering, uh, glimmering like uh, cubic zirconium, like it has no actual worth, brief time in Hollywood's history, this was a profitable thing that you could dump absurd amounts of money into until like jade happened <laughs> you know until <laughs> yeah the one two punch of showgirls and jade like i feel bad in a way not too much he's doing fine for joe esterhaas because imagine being you know the base like the flash dance guy the basic instinct guy and then having to wake up as that same person in like november 1995 after the last two months of your life have been the release of showgirls and the release of jade well it's interesting because he's he's the one who popularized the genre in a lot of ways but he's also the one who who ran it into the ground he's the one that burned it down also you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain because there's there's a ton. I mean, we we covered eight of the movies that came out in the decade, but there were so so many more. There were a lot of really really these these were some of the higher profile ones. There were a lot of like straight to video erotic thrillers and a lot of just like really bad ones that were coming out alongside. It was just it was a booming genre. But then, like you said, Jade Showgirls hits and it just drops off. <laughs> there's just that's pretty much the end of that of that genre. Mm-hmm. And once again, it probably it like there's no other way that this this whole narrative plays out and it doesn't end there. Like as much as I like Showgirls and like Starship Troopers, the fact is like the the reading of it as satirical did not come for a little while afterwards. So if either of those movies had been blockbusters, that would say something very, very concerning about the society in which they were released because it probably meant people were reading them seriously and approving of them on those merits. Well, I, I agree with you with the Showgirls uh, reference, but with Starship Troopers, being that that's based on a novel, mm-hmm. the... I think that people were talking about the satirical elements back then. It's just that yeah. nobody. Yeah, I don't. People still didn't like the movie. No, because the novel itself did have a reputation as being, you know, if you read it on a literal level, which a lot of people did, as being basically fascistic. It was like a fascist work, and that's what. Verhoeven took away from it after reading it. So the way he positions it is that he was kind of trying to play into the satirical elements of it, but it wasn't exactly the mainstream interpretation. Uh, And it certainly wasn't marketed as that. Oh, definitely not. So that's my theory. It's good that those movies did not make money at the time, because if it did, that would say something very concerning because it would not have been people reading it as satire. It would have been people <laughs> looking at showgirls, looking at uh, Starship Troopers, reading them at the surface level and being like, yeah, that makes sense. 
<laughs> oh boy, I love Starship Troopers. Man, I gotta rewatch so that. It's so great. I gotta rewatch that soon. What a great movie. Wrapping everything up, we talked about a lot of movies today. What what's your takeaway here? I mean, I know you talk we we just talked about, you know, how this is it's a very interesting uh genre for its time. I mean, it, it is certainly a genre of of its time and it's not something that would necessarily play right in in the current climate that we're living in. Yeah, like looking l- looking at the individual movies that we talked about, what what do you think what's your personal top one? What's your top pick? Probably Basic Instinct. That's mine too. I mean, I guess that's Sort of yeah. a no-brainer. Yeah, that seems but. like an easy choice there. Followed by To Die For. That would be my own kind of individual limb there. What would, Mine's easy. Would Sliver. <laughs> Sliver, <laughs> no doubt. Sliver all the way. Yeah, yeah. It's It's a fascinating series of movies to discuss because they are very much of their time and also terrible cultural ambassadors for the 90s because they make whatever culture these movies were released to look like one of the grossest times in modern history. Indeed. Yeah. I, I mean, I know that we don't, this is a 90s show. It's not an 80s show, but I Mm. would like to, on my own time, revisit some of these, some of the erotic thrillers of the eighties and see sort of compare and contrast how the erotic thrillers of the eighties were with the erotic thrillers of the nineties, because this, this is actually a genre that I don't have a lot of familiarity with. I was never into the genre at all uh, growing up or anything. So there's a lot of sort of missing spots on, on my lists for this, uh, for this genre. So I'd like to go in go back and watch uh, some of the eighties ones and see how they stack up against these 90 90s ones and see if like the same tropes and themes are there. Yeah. Yeah. It it would be interesting to have a look at that because a movie like fatal attraction, that kind of starts the erotic thriller trend that really takes off in the nineties. It is one of those movies that culturally it's so ubiquitous that it's kind of its reputation precedes it. Uh, so, I don't know. Does anyone actually watch that movie lately, or is, or do people, or did it just kind of get referenced so much that everyone felt like they had seen it anyway? Yeah, that's that's what that's what I'm thinking. But yeah, when that when that happens with a movie, then I am terrified to actually rewatch it because I'm fairly certain that it will be that it could not in any way live up to it. Yeah, that happens a lot. That happens a lot. I mean that that's similar to rewatching a movie that you loved when you were a kid and going back to it now and realizing that it was horrible. Yeah, it's like that on a sort of a macro cultural level. Mhm. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up for this month. Thank you so much for listening. Please consider rating us on iTunes. We really appreciate that. You can visit us on the web at 90spodcast.com. And for daily 90s goodness, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 90s Pod. And be sure to drop us a DM with your favorite 90s memories. For Ken Bakley, my name's Adam Patterson, and this has been Saved by the 90s. Bye, everyone. <laughs>